This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We've also got Terry South and Cole Wissinger. And we've also got breaking news... I got a sweet little call for my daughters who were so excited. We really need a sounder. A sounder for... Breaking news. We've got one. It's just like, thank you, Say it without the sounder, it's just like... It's not as dramatic. Yeah, yeah, Go ahead, go ahead. Well, let me juxtapose the breaking news with a sweet little call I got from my two daughters who were so excited to call me at 7.03, just minutes before the show started... Uh, to inform me that they were so excited about their bunk bed. They just woke up for the first time in their new bunk bed, and they love it. Oh, and by the way, there's a mouse. We found the second mouse in our in our room. In our room. Behind the blinds, they said, don't worry, it's dead. Which isn't very comforting for a father, because that <laughs> it's means... It's okay, Dad. Na- that means there are now two mice, so now it's a mouse. It's plural now. You go from mouse to mice, and now it's a problem. Meese? Meeses. Mouses? Mouses. Go ahead. Mice. Mices? It's just mice. Mice? Mouse? Go mouse ahead. and mice. Sorry. So, yes, I thought it was just an isolated incident, although Matt informed me that if there's one mouse, there's more. Yeah. There's probably... There's usually some kind of a nest somewhere. Ugh. So put out some traps, peanut butter and cheese. Go for it. But I think the highlight of the story peanut is peanut butter is the underrated mouse trap, like trapper. Matt actually said, uh, "Coat Jolly Ranchers in peanut butter," which I thought was a weird combination. But he said he came across, he came upon that strategy when he noticed that they had a drawer full of Jolly Ranchers, and the Jolly Ranchers were always being nibbled on so, by him. We uh, found out what to use when we opened up a bag of peanuts and they were pretty much all hollowed out. So, I, but I think the highlight of the story here is my daughters are happy. Isn't that what's the most important thing? And mouse carnage. Ugh. You know what I think happened, and it's we probably shouldn't joke about it, but maybe they got strangled in the blinds. I don't know, because that's where they found it. I'm not sure what other explanation it I don't know. Oh, at least it's gone. But now I have to start worrying where else I need to put mouse. Now you got me thinking meese. You just drop it around the house, two or three, in the areas you think that are, you know. Well, usually it's where the food is, not where the blinds are. It's so strange. All right. Maybe they're just smart. They live one place, they eat another. Well, other than happy children and dead mice, Terry, what else is going on around the rest of the country? A life and death storm is set to plow into the East Coast on Friday and Saturday, bringing with it dangerous coastal floodings, winds that could match Hurricane Sandy's and heavy snow, the Washington Post reports. The coast is where most of the damage is expected, since the storm will hit in conjunction with a full moon when the tides are at their most extreme. Shoreline roads will be flooded, some with more than three feet of water and largely impassable, warns the Post. Large debris will be washed ashore, basements will be flooded, sea walls could be damaged, and beaches will be severely eroded, the National Weather Service predicts. The storm surge in Massachusetts could potentially be the biggest since 1978. Wow. Then on the other side of the country, the area of Santa Barbara, California, that experienced wildfires in the fall that led to deadly mudslides, 
later on after the first of the year now facing a mandatory evacuation as heavy rains are expected in Southern California this weekend. Really? Yeah. Oh, that hits a little close to home. I'm from Southern California. You say that often. And the two years that I lived there, though, I think it rained once. Yeah. Well, now they're getting all that rain. Crazy. And uh, people are... Well, the reporters are standing in the street, and they say, well, remember the mudslides? They really haven't cleaned up since those mudslides. And they turn, oh. and there's like massive boulders still in the street, because there's nowhere to put that stuff. Oh, gosh. So these people are still not really dug out from the last problem, and now they're just having to get out of the way, because it's probably going to happen again. Fantastic. So, good news. Watch that over the weekend. And uh, the coastal flooding in New York, Boston area will be interesting, just if, if it happens, because usually they give like worst case scenario. Oh yeah, with the warning, and uh, but and then people decide, nah, they're just they're joking, and then it turns out to be exactly what they predicted. But don't you want to start with the worst case scenario in those situations? Yeah, they okay, because yeah. if you don't, you have the situation where wildfires sweep through neighborhoods, and people aren't alerted till the last second, and then people die. Yeah, and you can't do that, so you go worst case scenario, get everybody out, just be safe. Yeah, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 550 points Thursday, recovered around what a 420 point loss, I think, for on the day on Thursday, after President Trump announced that the U.S. will impose tariffs on steel and aluminum, or aluminium, if you listen to certain <laughs> reports, uh, imports starting next week. According to the president, the tariffs will be 25 uh, percent for steel, 10 percent for aluminum. It is unknown if the tariffs will apply to all imports or metals from specific countries. Donald Trump has insisted that trade wars are good and global stock will be sent uh, tumbling by the president's announcement. He said on Twitter this morning, he says, when a country, the USA, is losing billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. I thought you were going to blame it on Bitcoin. No. Examples when, uh, he goes, example, when we are down $100 billion with a certain country and they get cute they don't trade any, and they don't trade anymore, we win big. It's easy. Trump said Thursday that a duty of 25% would be imposed on steel, 10% aluminum, with experts and governments around the world predicting, an, an, uh, predicting other countries will take retaliatory measures and spark a global trade war on these Items. Ooh, the, wow. the, uh, the imposition of a tariff like this will do nothing other than distort trade and ultimately, we believe, will lead to a loss of jobs, the Australian trade minister said. My concern remains that on the back of actions like this, we could see retaliatory measures that are put in place by other major economies. That is in no one's interest, again, the Australian trade minister. Mm. Um, so, yeah, people in the steel and aluminum industries are very happy about this. Yep. But uh, not the uh, president's economic advisors, his top economic <laughs> advisor, who spent um, uh, months trying to keep Trump from imposing these tariffs, might not be sticking around much longer. Gary Cohen is one of the few moderates in Trump's orbit, and rumors have long swirled that he has been close to, uh, close to leaving the White House. Trump announced the tariffs Thursday, and Cohen tried in the last-ditch effort to convince him on Wednesday not to go through with his plan. Several people uh, reported to Politico. Cohen is passionate in his belief that protectionism is economically backwards and won't lead to increased prosperity. You know, by now, it seems like if you're, if you're the first person to leave Trump's cabinet, that's like huge news. But now it's kind of old hat, like, oh, he's yeah. leaving too. This isn't even his cabinet. These are his, his advisors on these Sheesh. different issues. So when he sits down and goes, okay, we're going to talk about the economy, this guy comes in and Trump brought him in because he's supposed to advise him valuing his opinion. That's usually why you appoint someone as your advisor, Yeah. except he's not listening to his advisor hmm. and just discounts him and just goes, eh, I'm doing my own thing. 
The guy's like, you're <sighs> gonna. This is gonna be a bigger problem than you want. And the idea that winning a trade war is easy, not when no one backs off. Yeah, it just turns into a stalemate across the <laughs> globe. And uh, I don't know. And what it, what it ends up being is if you we import a lot of this these items, and they they're going to cost more to come in, which means items will cost more. Yeah, the prices will be raised. And the U.S. manufacturing of these, a steel and aluminum, will have to really step up to fill the gap. If people want, if they're they're going to try to convince people to buy American instead of buying over, for, you know, from imports, and it's cheaper with imports, right? So you make it not cheaper, but then the U.S. Do they have the supply to fill the need? And that's been an issue in the past. So we'll see what happens. I think the that. real question is because the aluminum is coming from foreign lands mm. is it really referred to as aluminium that's what, yeah Ooh. Mm-hmm. yeah maybe we're mislabeling the product itself right. it's totally very true lead. though i mean just think of it on a smaller level whenever you want electronics like little chargers you get the imported knockoff stuff on ebay right it's cheap <laughs> it's a, you look for the five dollar you know power cord yeah, yeah. Uh, Equifax said Thursday that an additional 2.4 million Americans were impacted by last year's data breach. However, these newly disclosed consumers had significantly less personal information stolen. Hmm. So they reported Progress. They reported millions of people were exposed. Now they're saying, eh, add another 2.4 on top of that, but those people not so much. Oh. Just a little bit of their private information, not all of it. Just a little bit. The company says the additional consumers only had their names and partial driver's license numbers stolen by the attackers. Unlike the original 145.145.5 million Americans who had their social security numbers impacted. Oh, that's the scary one. Well, yeah, but I mean, they're trying to minimize this other one, and it could probably be just as bad, depending on how much information was actually leaked. Attackers were unable to get the state where the license was issued the date of the insurance or of its insurance or its expiration date. So, I mean, they got some information, not all. There's also reports that Equifax is making money on this data breach. Hmm. They uh, initially you would go to their website and there was uh, you could sign up for fraud protection. Okay, but that would last two or three months. Oh. When it was over, they send out emails saying, "Hey, pay some money and you can continue this this protection." Yeah. So they're making money off the breach that they caused because they didn't have their computers up to date. Hmm. This is unrelated, but if you ever notice, like when you call your internet provider and while you're on hold, the recording will say, "Make sure to tell the customer service representative if you would prefer we didn't use your number for marketing purposes." Yeah. And I always forget to tell them. Yeah. Which is why I get calls every day. Anyway, I digress. Next, winter. Uh, so you heard, there was the KFC chicken shortage in uh, Europe. Yes. This is the news I am here for. Um, okay. And people were calling me. police. It emergency. It was emergency. bad. They were saying this is not an emergency. You just don't have any but chicken. But it really was. But okay. <laughs> so now the problem is uh, they're, they're back to around what, all but 3% of the 900 KFC locations in England and Ireland have since reopened. The okay. BBC reports that delivery issues remain, meaning many sites are serving at a reduced menu, as oh. they're calling it. Gravy is one of the items that has temporarily vanished from menus. Oh, no. We're working on it as hard as we can to get this sorted out, a KFC spokesperson says. We know that our gravy is a big favorite. 
that uh, representative, uh, representative notes KFC's gravy grief, as they're calling it, is uh, from ongoing distribution challenges with new delivery vendor DHL. The Sun reports that suppliers have since been told to circumvent DHL's logistics warehouse and send the goods directly to the individual branches. Hmm. One patron lamented on Twitter, well, that's the end of the world. Gravy's the only reason I go to KFC. <laughs> Wow. You know, it's interesting. We we always think about how big KFC is here, but we don't often think about how big it is outside of this country. And speaking of that, we just had our first female colonel, Reba McIntyre, in the KFC commercials. Wouldn't you love to see a British colonel? Wouldn't that just be kind of a little ironic? And when I think of a British colonel, the first person that came to my mind was John Oliver. You Wouldn't think, he make a great colonel? <laughs> you think a lot about this issue. Well, I never eat there. Yeah. But, uh, but, I would, I'd love you, to. You think a lot about these commercials. Oh, yeah. They're, they're fantastic entertainment. I think very little about these commercials. Have you seen the Reba commercial? Sure. It's I, great. I watched it once. Went, huh, okay. <laughs> Have you seen? On. Probably the greatest one, though, other than the Norm MacDonald ones, were, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the George Hamilton KFC. Uh, that was the sunscreen one, right? Just because he's orange like the chicken. But just imagine John Oliver as the colonel, right. but speaking as John Oliver, like mm. not even trying to mask the accent well, or anything. Reba, from what I saw, she doesn't really try to mask hers too much. Oh, no. So, But that's the joke. Well, right. That, like nothing has changed about me. The, the Still joke, the same old colonel. The joke that's good, you know, the one time you watch it and then you're like, all right, good. But. No, come on. It's still good as gold. Speaking of good as gold, have you ever eaten one of their double downs? No. This is the the chicken as the bun mm-hmm. with slices of meat in between. I think bacon is in there. There's oh, some kind bacon of a and sauce. Cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Do they still make that? Not that I've seen recently. I think it's this, a limited time type yeah, situation. Yeah, this was my it's, it's favorite their, sandwich. It's their McRib. Really? That has ever happened. Ever. Is it good? It's a, it's amazing. Yeah, but I haven't had one since probably about 2011. It's really true what they say. Sometimes you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Mm. I never tried you double down, and I am so sorry for that. And people in England apparently don't have any no gravy. Of, no gravy. Yeah, no gravy. Well, don't call They're the police. Concerned. Do not call the police. I uh, I don't think they I think they have bigger fish to fry, which is interesting when you're talking Chickens about a chicken to joint. Fry. Okay. Anyway, uh, Terry, anything else going so, on that we should worry about? Speaking about the UK, an alarming number of children can no longer hold pencils and pens due to excessive technology use. Pediatricians oh, in the UK warn. No, that's what they're saying. I knew this day was coming. They claim that tablet-addled uh, kids who can uh, crack their parents' smartphone passwords before their fifth birthdays, now lack the dexterity to use basic utensils. Wow. Children coming into school are being given a pencil, but are increasingly not able to hold it because they don't have the fundamental movement skills, says Sally Payne, head pediatric occupational therapist at Heart of England Foundation Trust Hospital something. NIH, it's their government hospital system. So we might have to go back to using those little uh, devices. Not us. Okay. This is in the UK. But you remember those devices, though, like those little rubber things that you slip on the end of the pencil that kind of have little grooves for your right. fingers to teach you and train you how to use the pencil? Yeah. Maybe. They need those. They need, like, some training wheels for the pencils. But children, just tie a string around so they have to hold on to that pencil. So children are not coming into school with the hand strength and dexterity that they had 10 years ago. You know what? I have the perfect solution. Don't give them a pencil. 
Give them a stylus pen.、Mm. That'll help them learn how to use a pen or a pencil. Says the issue is that using a pencil requires a surprising amount of control and practice. Young children need to be given opportunities to develop the small but important muscles in their fingers, and prodding your iPad is not one of them. Says、mm. the occupational therapist. They say coloring at home with crayons can help. I don't know. Put the iPad away. It never says that. They should just put the iPad away. Still, no one is saying it's time to cut technology. See, what I want to hear about all these studies that are done on the next generation that's growing up with iPads. I want to know how great this generation is going to be at finger painting because the whole concept <laughs>、oh, of、yeah. the iPad is using、uh, your hand as the pencil. You don't have to hold the pencil, so you're, a, you're drawing things and cutting fruits and yeah, doing all those things. Yeah, I don't have the. It doesn't have the quote here in the article, but there was one quote I heard where it says kids are coming in. And they're grabbing pencils like cavemen. Wow! Right, so you're just sort of like、Urgh. make a fist, hold the pencil, and just start scribbling with. I mean, it there were kids in my kindergarten that yeah, did that, and we so, didn't have iPads. So you know how we used to learn how to write in cursive? It's not really、no. a thing anymore. So you don't even remember. Did、oh you? well, no, yeah,、okay. I did. That was my first ever B in elementary school. It was fourth grade handwriting, really class grade thing. They, they gave me a B. Wow. The Did、nerve. they write it in cursive? No. Okay.、Um, so we've kind of reached a point where we don't do that anymore. Do they even teach cursive? Some、writing? schools don't. Some just skip it. I wonder、Because、if we're going to. Because it is dumb. Well,、mm-hmm. I thought it more of an adult way of writing, but whichever way you want to look at it. Are we going to get to a point where we're not even going to need to write handwritten notes? Well, we're, we're kind of there. I know when it's kind of scary. When you hear that someone got a handwritten note, it's like, oh wow, really? Wow, that's really personal. Who got kidnapped? Yeah, like what? <laughs> Who cut out all the newspaper letters? Right? Yeah. But yeah, no. That I mean, now we have email and text. I haven't. I went to write. I was in some meeting, and they said, "Here, write down some thoughts here, and then we'll talk about them." And I went to write them down. I'm like, wow, this is tough. I haven't written something down in this long of a. And it, we're talking about like maybe fifty words. Yeah. And about twenty in, I'm like, oh, this is tough. Why can't we just text this in? You know, <laughs> it is interesting though. In a way, it's a good thing because it makes gift giving so much easier.、Mm. Let me explain what I mean by that. No, thank you notes.、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's that?、Go、what、ahead. I'm saying is, all of a sudden, I mean, a letter, a handwritten letter, just used to be. Uh, you know, a run-of-the-mill thing.、Mm. You know, you get a handwritten letter, and it's、right. like, oh, great, another letter. But now, when you get a handwritten letter, it's like, oh, you、yeah. get a little emotional because you're like, somebody cares that much about me to take the time to actually write、like、it out with their of, own hand. Think of the agony they went through to actually、oh. write something on paper. Yeah, they're、it's、rubbing、crazy. their hands yeah, all throughout like, the letter. My hands cramping. I can't do this anymore. I'm telling you, it's a it's a good world we're living in when a handwritten letter. Is considered a wonderful gift. As someone that doesn't own a printer, I still handwrite things more often <gasps> than I would like、wow. type. Because you're imagining giving a gift, right? So what are you going to tag with it? Like a, a printed off memo kind of sheet?、Mm. I would still handwrite a thing. It's it's just a, as opposed to email. Are you just fill in the blank next to from? Yeah. Just、okay. put my name and we're done. <laughs> all right, all right. So you get partial credit. You get a、I、B go, on that. I enjoy. Telling you face to face how I feel instead of writing something down, and it's more, it's more personal face to face rather than you know some correspondence. Okay, that's my way of getting it. My mom always tried when I was a kid. We'd get like the little,、um, what was it? It was like a 
pack, a gift pack, and not, not a gift pack, but it was more of a stationary type situation. Mm-hmm. You get your cards and your little envelopes, yeah. and this is your this is to write thank you notes when you get gifts. And I'm like, oh man, and <sighs> so you almost didn't want to get gifts because like, thank you so much for the you know whatever they did, and then you send it off, and everyone's so happy when they got that. Like, wow, you're so nice, and your mom's teaching you so well. I'm like, this is all just so my mom looks good. Isn't that what Facebook is for? Now it is, yeah. Yeah. I've tried to make a point, at least, when people wish me a happy birthday on Facebook, I tried to respond to them individually. With a like. No, 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 no. I don't do what a lot of people do and do the mass uh, thank you to all the people that – because, you know – I, and it's a good way to catch up. It's a way to show that you care as much as they care. Well, you're saying they don't bit. care very much if they're just putting happy birthday real quick on Facebook as they're scrolling through everything else. I might be saying that. Okay. Well, we are going to completely shift gears when we return. We're actually going to be speaking with Russell Frank. And there's been a lot in the news about mass shooters. We just had the big one in Florida, and he's going to talk to us about why the media needs to think twice about how they portray mass shooters. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, there's there's no question that we as humans are deeply curious about those who commit crimes. Our movies, our television shows, video games, and media coverage all reflect it. But can stoking this fascination cause harm? Should the media think twice about how they portray mass shooters? Here with us is Professor Russell Frank, who worked for newspapers in California and Pennsylvania as a reporter and editor for 12 years before joining the College of Communications faculty at Penn State, uh, uh, Pennsylvania State University in 1998. He teaches news writing, feature writing, column writing, news media ethics, and the literature of journalism. Professor Frank, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks very much. So I am I this is a question that's been on my mind for some time and I think what stoked uh this idea in my mind was when I found that I was a little too fascinated with the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer and I was a little disenchanted with it by the end when I realized wait a minute I'm a little too into this, and I, I don't like the way that I'm being manipulated into thinking that maybe this guy is not, so ba- not such a bad guy. So clearly, it's, it's very much an issue on, on, on TV and the movies. Why do you think people are so fascinated with criminals? Uh, you know, I think we all have those impulses in us. Um, society, religion, etc., you know, constrains our behavior and... Um, you know, there are so many compelling reasons not to act on these violent impulses. Um, it's against the law. You, can, uh, you might get arrested. You might get sent to prison. You could be in very big trouble. And we also are taught that these things are wrong. Um, those are two really compelling reasons not to commit crimes. And, so, and yet, there are always among us people who do it anyway. And so, you know, to the, the think about what drives them, what compels them, to these actions is fascinating. And then there's the sort of, um, you know, the whole crime and punishment, how, it, how does it play out? 
you know, are they going to get caught? If they do get caught, how are they going to be punished? Um, I don't think any of us needs to apologize for being fascinated by this. I think this is totally natural in us, and it's been a focal point of human storytelling since the beginning of time. Um, what happens to people when they commit transgressions? Will they be punished? Um, so that's all perfectly understandable. You know, the real question is, are there harms associated with that, that kind of storytelling when it comes to news media coverage of carnage? So what, what's the answer to that? Do you, what, what sort of harm is there from having this fascination? Yeah, you know, well, there's a lot of talk about a copycat effect that um, intense news media coverage of one mass shooting might inspire the next unhinged person to commit a similar crime. And, you know, even though it feels like these things are coming at us one after another, um, if you think about the total number of schools in America, um, school shootings, um, I'm happy to say, are still quite rare overall. I mean, even one, needless to say, is unacceptable, but um, they don't happen that often. So in terms of providing you know, a, a database of information, I mean, there's really not that much to go on in terms of answering that question, does crime A inspire crime B through media coverage of it? Um, it's hard to really say. I think some of the most compelling evidence actually comes from the shooters themselves when they specifically talk about somebody previously um, arrested for committing um, a mass shooting, um, where they say, you know, um, very plainly, that here's this guy who's now gotten all this attention that he never would have gotten um, if he hadn't committed this heinous deed. Um, and so you know, that really has to give us pause and think about that. What role are we as the news media playing in contributing to this problem? So, yeah, let's talk about that. The, the news organizations that put out these stories and that, that they take the angles that they take – do you feel like they're they're being flippant or that they're they're uh, they're doing these things lightly or do you think they're well aware of what they're doing and is it all about ratings or what how do you think the how do you think media is doing right now in their role? Yeah, I mean I tend to resist the cynical view um, which um I I think like I'm the last person you'd accuse of being naive about the news media, but I don't think it's really just about ratings. I just I think they do think that there is this public um benefit to knowing whatever we can know. I mean that's sort of the journalistic mantra. The more we know, the more information we have, the better we understand our world and the better we can solve the problems in our world. And, you know, as far as that goes, it makes a fair amount of sense, right? Um but um, there was so much talk about how the news media covers school shootings when there seemed to be this flurry of them around the time of Columbine. So you had there were some before and some after 1988, sorry, 1998, 1999, right around there. And, um, you know, one of the things that stays in my mind is um, some therapists responded to the coverage and said, you know, some reporters would defend doing the interviews. So this is the other dimension of this, is the um, focusing all this attention on the shooter, but the other part is um, invading the privacy of the loved ones and the victims and so on. And um, so, you know, some therapists, you know, some journalists were defending that practice of doing these interviews and saying it's cathartic for the people who've been involved in these horrendous situations to talk about it. And the therapists sort of shot back by saying... Um, 
you know, you guys are not trained therapists. You have no business talking about what is and isn't cathartic mm. um, for people involved in, in uh, carnage like this. Um, you know, leave that to the experts. And uh, I think that point was well taken, um, or should have been well taken, but really wasn't. Um, I think, uh, so anyway, I mean, there are two big ethics issues that arose in that period, 1998, 1999, um, about are we showering too much attention on the shooter? Are we being too intrusive in our coverage of the victims? And, um, and I've really been struck by the way the more recent shootings have covered. It's as if those conversations never happened. Um, I don't see a whole lot of, uh, there needs to be soul-searching about this, you know, that there has to be, um, we have to weigh, you know, what is the harm versus what is the public benefit of how we cover these kinds of stories. And I think there there really is a possibility of harms that have to be taken seriously, and I don't really, I haven't heard enough about that lately. Yeah. When is this, when has this focus on the suspect rather than victims, how long has this been going on? Well, you know, I think, <laughs> I don't think blame is the right word, but, you know, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood was such a landmark. Oh, problem. yeah. So, so for people who aren't familiar, you know, this was this case of these two um, petty criminals who um, wound, uh, they invaded a farmhouse in a very rural area in Kansas, and they killed the whole family. Um, and they got away with, like, you know, peanuts in terms of as a robbery. Um and so Truman Capote wanted to sort of understand this like totally senseless crime. You know, what motivated these guys? And it was one of the early forays into sort of really delving deep. You know, novelists and playwrights have done this, but for a, a journalist, for a, a writer of nonfiction, to look at real criminals and to try to get to know them and try to understand them. And I think that, that book, the success of that book, it was so well done and so compelling. Um, but that has inspired the whole genre, really, of true crime reporting, both you know at book length and just in um, daily journalism. Um, and so it, it kind of showed that um, this, there's a real interest there in those kinds of psychological profiles uh, of criminals, uh, and that the appetite for that is pretty uh, insatiable. So, you know, and all you have to do is look at all the, you know, the TV shows. Yeah, that very thing. Yeah, As you were saying when we started talking. You know, how compelling you were finding the program you were watching. So I'm curious to know, is this one of the harms that, that comes from portraying uh, criminals in this light, that maybe we start to sympathize with them? Is there is there any benefit in sympathizing with the criminal? Well, you know, it's, it's so beyond my expertise, the area <laughs> of, like, what it means to be crazy, kind of. You know, what yeah. Is it by you know does anybody who do this, who does something like this insane? I mean, by some definitions, yeah. But um, you know, I've heard a lot of um, clinicians on the radio in the last couple of weeks talking about um, the argument that we've got to do a better job of identifying um, these high-risk individuals who might commit such crimes. And what these people are saying, the therapists are saying, the clinicians are saying, is that. Uh, you know, very often there aren't real signals beforehand. Um, and that we're, you know, as a society, we can't just like preemptively lock people up because they're kind of weirdos or something. Yeah. Like that, you know? uh, 
that there has to be some pretty compelling evidence uh, to commit somebody against their will, um, that they are really um, a danger to themselves or society. That's uh, it's not so easy to demonstrate. I mean, before people snap, if snapping is what they do, um, it's very hard to predict that they're going to snap. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Russell Frank, who is on the faculty of the College of Communications at Pen- uh, Pennsylvania State University. And, uh, Russell, I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell us what what are some good practices that the media can adopt or that the media can follow when reporting on mass shootings? Well, one, so we just had a student, her name is um, Shannon Kennan. She just um, finished her, um, her doctoral dissertation on this very topic, and she it was a very deep dive into um, trauma. And, you know, one of the things where I think reporters can really go wrong, and she brought this point out in her dissertation, is um, that somebody, let's say there's been a shooting in a school, and a kid is now outside the school, and to all appearances, he seems calm. You know, he's not crying his eye out, he's not, he's not weeping and wailing. So you say, oh, this looks like a good candidate for an interview. This person is not falling apart. Um, but, you know, there is no way to know, you know, whether this person might be in shock, um, that, that, that trauma can manifest itself, you know, all kinds of ways, one of which is like a total lack of reaction, you know, that can be mistaken for, for calm and for, um, you know, still maintaining your, uh, you know, your sanity in an insane situation. And so, you know, there's no way you can read that behavior if you don't, I'm not, I don't even know if professionals can do it, but certainly reporters aren't skilled or have the training to read that kind of behavior. So, um, so one thing that she says, especially when young children are involved, is like we really should not be interviewing um, young children at the scene of these crimes. There, as, as testimony, it's not reliable, um, and as emotional response, um, it might do more harm than good in terms of their recovery from this trauma. Um, and then she goes on to say that even with high school kids, um, we might want to give them a little bit of space and a little bit of time. And of course, that goes so against the grain of how the news media operates. It's like, no, we want the story right now. I mean, the thing just happened. Kids have just come out of the schools now is when it's the most dramatic time to get them, to get their voices. Um, but we really uh, are not doing people any favors. Um, you know, the victims in these situations. And I think we have to really think first and foremost yeah. about them. Um, you know, and then uh, the other part of it is, again, getting back to the attention that we lavish on the perpetrator. Um, and should we be showing all these photographs of them, especially photos that might to a, uh, you know, to a younger person and to a person who is, um, you know, having emotional difficulty in their lives, you know, one that seems to sort of glorify them or glamorize them in some way. Um, remember there was that cover photo on Rolling Stone magazine of one of the, um, those two guys in the uh, Boston Marathon bombing? Yeah. Um, where he was kind of a handsome kid, and he had this kind of soulful expression on his face, and a lot of people criticized Rolling Stone as saying, you're really, um, you're kind of glamming this guy up. Yeah. Um, you shouldn't be doing that. And uh, I remember the, um, the Virginia Tech massacre, um, they had taken photos from his social media account of him brandishing these weapons. And so my son was about 12 years old at the time, and I remember the paper, like the front page of the New York Times, and we were just sitting on a chair in the dining room, um, and you could see that image. 
and he's walking by, and he like he stopped dead in his tracks and looked at us, and I could see, you know, that for to a kid, you see something like that, it's like cool, you know, that, that that's kind of a cool image. Yeah. Um, I don't think we want to, you know kids responding in that way to those kinds of images. So I think that kind of stuff is pretty irresponsible. Um, I think some of these people's writings, and again. I, to defend the news media's approach, it's all in the interest of understanding what makes these guys tick, right? I mean, that's the justification. Yeah. Um, but to the extent that um, all that attention um, can inspire somebody else, um, as I said, I think there needs to be a whole lot more soul-searching about how to cover these things. Do you think there's anything that we can do as consumers of some of this media, whether it be... Uh, television shows or books or movies to kind of take a step back and and maybe change some of our behavior? Because you talked a little bit about the glamorization, and I, I think I could think of so many examples in movies where the crime that's being committed is, is being uh, glorified or glamorized to the point where, oh, that that's so cool. You know, they're ripping off this bank or, like you said, they're shooting off these guns. And I think of the example of the film Baby Driver, where the soundtrack to the movie is synchronized with the shooting of the guns. So even the the murdering in the movie that's going on is considered to be cool. You know, we're we're left thinking, oh, that's so cool. What is there? Are there behaviors that we should be changing in ourselves? You know, I think we have to start by acknowledging that we, as a species, we love violence. We do. <laughs> that's just. How we're wired, you know, we're obsessed with sex and violence. We, we may as well just admit it. Um, so that said, like, what do you do with that? Um, it just seems like we 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 face the risk of becoming desensitized. Yeah, and you know, I, I mean, one of the great questions in, in in media studies for decades now is, what is the impact on us of repeated prolonged exposure? to violence. Does yeah. it make us more violent? And, uh, you know, there have been uh, papers that have been written about um, kids who grow up watching, you know, Popeye cartoons and um, or even the Three Stooges, you know, just all kinds of, you know, kid entertainment that had uh, violence in it. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is most of us who grow up... Um, on kind of an even keel psychologically, are able to distinguish, you know, the real from the not real, play Mm -hmm. from not play, and, you know, don't just because we see people bashing each other's brains in um, in the media doesn't mean we're going to go out and enact that kind of violence ourselves in our own lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we're concerning ourselves about is that, you know, small percentage among us who... um, who will do that because, uh, and often, you know, there are all these other factors in their lives. It's not just media exposure. It's, you know, really messed up home situations, family situations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, brain chemistry, who knows? Again, beyond my expertise. Um, but we don't know. You know, we, we don't know. I don't think that's really the big problem is, is our exposure in terms of making us more violent. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it's up to the, it's up to the news media finally to take responsibility for this. If they're going to show us um, things that fascinate us, yeah, we're going to watch because it's sort of in our nature to be fascinated by these things. Um, but 
you know, the funny thing about the news media is that it kind of um, it portrays itself as having this um, this kind of objective approach. It's like it's not up to us to filter stuff out or decide um, what people should think about this. We just present it. But in fact, the larger mission of the news media is toward a better society. You know. Um, it's like everything we report is because we're showing, we're calling attention to problems in the hopes that now that you know about this, you're going to do something about it, right? Um, and so with that in view, you know, everything we do, all the stories we cover and the way we cover them has to be um, looked at through that lens. You know, how does this make the world a better place? And if it doesn't, we need to rethink how we do it. Well, Professor Frank, I think that sums it up perfectly. And uh, we have been speaking with Russell Frank, who is a professor in the College of Communications at Pennsylvania State University. And he's been talking to us about media coverage of mass shooters and how they're portrayed. And maybe we need to take another look at that. And we certainly appreciate all your comments here today, Russell. We're going to take a break. And when we return, we're going to continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. Okay, we actually have some more breaking news, Cole. There's an update. Yeah, we really need a sound, but that's not going to work. <laughs> There's an update to the mouse story. I just got a text from my wife, and when I had heard there was a mouse, I it was a call from my girls. I said, put your mom on the phone, and they never did. And sometimes they'll pretend like they're my wife, which, of course, I never fall for it. Um, I just got a text from my wife. The girl said they called. Sorry, I was still in bed. There's no mouse. Sophia was kidding. Oh, those girls. That's like the Good only update. time they've successfully tricked me. You know, because kids, they try to trick you all the time. Getting on, They're always getting on the phone saying, hello, this is grandma. And you never buy it, right? But they got me. Those little princesses got me. All right. Way to clean that up. So that's the breaking news. Princesses. Yeah. So, Terry, apparently we have more breaking news, but it's candy related. It's not really breaking news. It's more just kind of an odd, like, scientific <laughs> adjacent discovery. That scientific this, adjacent. I like that. This newsroom in Louisville found out. WFPL, apparently they have a lot of candy in their newsroom. Hmm. Chocolate, buttercups, peanut butter cups, Jolly Ranchers. Uh, gummy bears, just all kinds of stuff. Okay, why is so, our newsroom like that? Because we don't have a budget to buy candy, <laughs> apparently. Um, so they have this gigantic bag of gummy bears, and they started asking, do gummy bears really come in different flavors, or do we just think they taste different because they're different colors? Ooh. They, they definitely taste different. Do they? I oh, I think yes. it depends on the brand. Mm, Some of them are tricking right. you. The newsroom apparently was split on the answer, so they conducted a, an experiment. They did okay. a, a blind taste test. That's how you solve these things. Science. You eat the candy. That's yeah. really the point. So they initially, the whole question seemed silly. Several people played along. Once they closed their eyes, their accuracy in differentiating, differentiating between the flavors declined. Mm. Once they took away the, the color, they couldn't tell what color it was. They couldn't tell what flavor it was. Really? 
So it turns out this phenomenon is something that real scientists are studying also and something big candy companies have counted on for many years, apparently. Mm-hmm. So uh, this guy We're from on to him. Don Katz, a Brandeis <laughs> University neuropsychologist who specializes in taste. I love these colleges. Yeah. Everyone has a specific job. I specialize in taste. That would be a great job. Right. So he has a colleague in the UK, Charles Spence, who did the most wonderful experiment. He says he took normal college students, gave them a row of clear beverages in clear glass bottles. The beverages had fruit flavoring. One was orange, one was grape, apple, lemon. Those are all the flavors. Okay. According to Katz, the college students did a great job of differentiating between the flavors of the clear liquids. But then he added food coloring. The wrong food coloring for the liquid. So lemon ah, was red, that kind of thing. Tricky, tricky. He goes, while I wouldn't say they, they went to chance, their ability to tell which, uh, which, was, which they got was subpar all of a sudden. The orange beverages tasted like orange. The yellow beverage tasted like lemonade. There wasn't a thing they could do about it. Uh, it was so powerful, powerful that even when uh, the professor told the students that it, it was uh, his job as a scientist to mess with the conditions and ask them just to tell them what they tasted without considering the color, they couldn't do it. Wow. So it's, it's that, that visual plus the taste and it conflicts. If they're messed up, you still can't get it. So it says this is absolutely something that candy companies know. And while I don't usually talk about gummy bears, what I like to talk about is Skittles, this professor says uh-huh. from Brandeis University. Yes. The sk- Skittles peep, uh, people, being much smarter than most of us, recognize that it's cheaper to make things smell and look different than it is to actually make them taste different. Okay, but when you throw in that green apple, you know that they all taste different. So he says Skittles have different fragrances and different colors, but they all taste exactly the same. If you bite them, they have the same stuff inside, and they're 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 saying the candy company makes them smell different. Jeff they don't actually taste different. Jeff does not believe the science right I now. I certainly do not. I mean, I'm thinking of Lifesaver gummies. Those so, have, those taste like the Lifesavers. Oh, and I know that Swedish Fish definitely have different flavors when you get the different colors of those. Professor Katz said really? this, wor- this works because our brains are used to processing certain sensory cues together. For example, our brains associate the color yellow and a lemon. They smell acidic, that taste, each other. They all are associated. So when you're offered two of the three sensory cues, say taste and smell, not taste, but smell and look, but not taste – you still taste lemon. I think I would do okay in a blind taste test. What my big problem is with food, this is like one of the few moments of horror in my life. When I I look at something, I go to bite into it, and it tastes or has a texture completely different than what I'm anticipating. That is like a horrific moment for me. They they did say that the more money you spend on the candy, so the higher end candy, <laughs> okay, they they actually put the effort into it. The cheaper candy is where they're trying to save some money, I right? Because they're not you, getting a lot back on it, so they they cut down on the fact that it tastes actually different. They give you the color and the smell, and that seems to work. I guarantee you, you could taste the difference between a green apple skittle and a strawberry skittle. The green apple completely in a, in, in a, ruined in a, in a blind taste test. When they switched, you have to do it without seeing the candy. Oh yeah. When they switched now, from he's lime, basing this on never doing this. When they switched that. from lime to green apple, it, it just like they're all of a sudden there's like one fifth of the bag I'm no longer eating. Again, a lot of detail on candy. I usually just open the bag and consume. I don't think about the but psychological usually, ramifications of the candy. Usually, when there's a different flavor, like Skittles is a perfect example. You throw them in your mouth. You figure, okay, all the flavors will kind of blend together. Mm. 
But that green apple, it's like it's like banana in a smoothie or a shake. It just stands out. Not that a banana in a smoothie or a shake is bad, but it's something. It's very prominent. You did disparage the banana there, though. No, it felt like it. Well, the banana's not the most elegant of fruits. Let's just say. All right, for all those people that think I'm hating on bananas, I'm going to take a break to eat a banana right now to prove you wrong. I'm hoping that when we come back, we can do a blind taste test, but I doubt we have the budget for that. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Cole, in the little time that we have left, you mentioned a candy that to me is very offensive. During the break, you mentioned it, and it brought back uh, painful memories. Yes. Warheads. Warheads. The atomic, it was nicknamed the atomic warhead, or was that actually written on the package? They had different levels of warhead, it's true. Yeah, and as a kid, I remember loving those those fruity, sour candies. Um, you know, I loved uh, Sour Patch Kids. I still kind of do. You know, they had those... First they're sour, then they're sweet. Right. They have those sour straws, which, you know, were... Okay, I could take those or leave those. But the Atomic Warhead, those were just offensive to me. Even as a kid, I remember thinking, this is just a really uh, unpleasant experience. Why am I inflicting this upon myself so voluntarily? I would store them on my teeth for a little bit so that oh. I didn't have to touch my tongue because oh. that's where it really... But I felt a cavity just burning through the enamel as See, the intensity of the sourness got to me. Just talking about it, I can I can taste it. And, I, you know... It's a good which, memory, isn't according it? to you and Terry, is all psychological, just like all these flavors are the same anyway. It's all in my head, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mind over matter, oh. Jeff. Oh, I'm, I'm like, I uh, yeah, we got to take a break. Because Candy is a good thing. Candy I'm is tasting, tasty. I'm tasting these warheads again, and I, it's bringing back horrible memories. So, uh, but speaking of good memories, when we return, we're going to supply you with a bunch of those. And we're going to start off by giving you the BBC News coming up next here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm here with Terry South and Cole Wissinger. And uh, we, as we've been known to do, we've kind of gotten off on a food tangent. I'm going to be having a cereal date that that sounds like sounds it's not so good. so much lamer uh, than... Let me... Hold on. I'm going to be having a date with my wife... There you go. ...where good we're start. going to consume various cereals. Nope. Didn't sound any better. That no? Time. And Cole <laughs> is trying to convince me of the error of my ways, or in this case, my tastes. And, uh... There are just yeah. so many great sugary cereals out there, and you're missing... You're just... You're not broadening your horizons quite enough. I'm talking to... I, I told you about the, the little eight-pack sampler thing that you can get and just yeah. get a wide variety. But you're buying these full-size boxes of just a certain number, and I just... I, don't, I think there's room for growth here. The problem you is when you, when you get the sampler package, 
you're left with all the flavors that you know you don't it's like but they what throw don't them in you there want? the obligatory like ah well what are we and they're trying to empty their shelves and you know corn let's pops get rid of is these. probably the the Ugh. least loved but i corn still pops, would eat that any day of the week i wouldn't eat corn pops honey smacks uh mm, mm, i don't know they're so, all good i i'm surprised you're not a fan of the captain Oh, so you you know we were talking about Captain Crunch, but you specifically brought up Berry Captain Crunch, which is the worst of the Captain Crunches. I think you original are... Captain Crunch is vastly superior, and you are trying to represent all berry and fruity cereals with Berry Captain Crunch when there's also Frankenberry and fruity pebbles and Fruit Loops. Now listen, I love me some regular Captain Crunch. Yes, but to appease the wife, I got the Berry Captain Crunch, and I think you're. You're very much in the minority on the regular is better than the berry, but I would eat either one in a heartbeat. They're all great. Um, Because as a kid, you just want to destroy your teeth and you also want to destroy your gums. And Cap'n Crunch just knocks it out of the park in both of those. Yeah. Anyway, we better stop talking about food because I'm hungry. It's breakfast time. We're helping the people. And unlike that newsroom and where was it again, Terry? Louisville. Louisville. We don't have these or Louisville. sugary Louisville. goodies at our disposal. And uh, I'm still not convinced. Well, you do. You just different... have to go pay for them. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> You're an adult now. You can go buy candy whenever you want, Jeffrey. I know, which kind of takes some of the fun out of it, Aww. you know? Anyway, Terry, what else is going on that we should be talking about? Residents along the East Coast Thursday, so today or yesterday, blamed for or bracing for a, quote, life and death situation. That's what is being characterized by officials. I think that might be, uh, I don't know if that's really the best approach for helping warn the public of a a pending storm, but I guess it gets the point across. So life and death situation. Powerful storm. They're calling it a nor'easter. There's the bomb storm, which was a term they used but the last time there was one of these huge storms. Uh, Expected to pummel the area. High winds, heavy rain, snow over the weekend. National Weather Service in Boston uh, urges residents to take the storm seriously. On Twitter on Thursday, issuing a coastal flood warning that homes are likely to be destroyed. See, maybe then you do have to say life and death well, so know, that people take it seriously. I don't know. Seems dramatic. Seems like something CNN breaks in and goes, breaking news, life and death. And they have like their music and there's like Is fire their breaking and... news sounder better than mine? They have, they have a new one for every event and it runs for days and it has ominous music and then, oh, horrible situation. And then they just sort of revel in it. That's what we were talking about last hour with how we cover mass shootings. It's like, okay, what are we doing with But these? I think you do need to to give it some thought because otherwise, what's the point in building up our food storage and right. having these 72-hour kits? But we need to use them. The, the, the opposite effect of, with these storms is that how these the, the way the media portrays the storms happen, it happens so often that people just ignore it because every time it's the same level of you know, impending doom. Yeah, and then if but, it doesn't if it doesn't follow through with the way that they've amped it up to be, then people don't really pay attention next time there's a warning. But worst case scenario, uh, you're inconvenienced because right. if you follow the advice, you're covered, right? You'll right. be out of harm's way. Meteorologists have said the storm will wreak havoc from Car- the Carolinas to Portland, Maine, throughout Friday and wow. Saturday. Some parts of New York are expected to get as much as ten inches of snow, while other areas in the state along the coast are likely to see up to four inches of rain. So, mm. yeah. Okay. Brace, bear down, 
move out. Wh- whatever they're asking you to do, <laughs> probably out. just do it. Yeah, move, I guess. If your home's going to be destroyed, I guess, you know, try to sell it before the weekend. There you go. Uh, the White House getting ready to replace National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, according to reports, as early as next month, possibly, this out of NBC News. The move is being coordinated by White House Chief of Staff John Kelly and Defense Secretary James Mattis. The outlet reports... Stephen uh, Bingham, the vice president of international government affairs at Ford Motor Company, is reportedly the leading candidate to take the job. He's actually worked in the uh, White House before, looks like, under President Bush hmm. Jr., I call him. Okay. Just the son. Just so we know, because there's yeah. two. It yeah. gets confusing. He worked with Condoleezza Rice. Uh, Roberta Jacobson is resigning as the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. She announced in a letter to embassy staff Thursday, Jacobson, her career diplomat, will leave her post May 5th. The Associated Press reports... Jacobson has served in the U.S. chief liaison with Mexico for two years, but is leaving the position amid new strains in the country's relationship under President Trump. Her departure will be deeply felt by both American and Mexican officials. She was one of the most experienced Latin American experts in the State Department. She's worked there for 30 years. Wow. But she's leaving as as she's trying to be the ambassador, but we can't have like state visits because... We won't back off yeah. on making Mexico pay for the wall, like comment. Right. And so there's just an impasse, and she's like, ah. So 30 yeah. years, calling it a career. Off she goes. But it's a then, great career. But it's like in South Korea, we had a, there was an ambassador there. They have stepped down, and they haven't, they haven't like replaced that one. That one's a key issue in the mm-hmm. world. Be nice to have someone over there. We don't have yeah. anybody there yet. National Rifle Association signaled that it managed to talk to President Trump and backed him off from his sudden and surprising embrace of stricter gun laws, with its lobbyists saying he was reassured, he was assured that the president doesn't want gun control. NRA Executive Director Chris <laughs> Cox tweeted, I had a great meeting with Trump and Pence. We all want safe schools, mental health reform, and to keep guns away from dangerous people. The uh, POTUS and V-POTUS, so the president and the vice president, support the Second Amendment, support strong due process, and don't want gun control. Shortly afterwards, Trump tweeted, good, or parentheses, great. Not sure what that means, but good meeting in the Oval Office tonight with the NRA. So Trump's like, yeah. Wow. I didn't think it was possible to tell Trump what he did or did not want. You know, you talk. It's the last person in the room. Yeah. That's that's how this works. He, and he jumps on Twitter and confirms they, they were last person <laughs> in the room. The ongoing battle between smokers and non-smokers apparently extends to the workplace. More than 40% of non-smokers believe they should get three to five extra vacation days per year to compensate for all the time their smoking coworkers spend on cigarette breaks. This I, according to a recent survey. I'm, I'm probably in that camp. Right. A nearly equal percentage of smokers, however, believe that non-smokers are not entitled to any additional vacation days. And why? doesn't say. The what? average worker who smokes spends the equivalent of about six days per year on cigarette breaks, according to the project manager of this study, as they reported this to USA Today. Right. Now, I tried to do this when I had my first job out of, uh, when I was in high school, I worked at a hardware store. I went to the boss and I said, you realize everybody in this building smokes? They're all out on smoke breaks multiple times a day. I show up. I'm on the clock. I never leave the floor. Maybe I'll use the restroom or something. I don't take a break. I don't do anything. Can I get a raise? And he goes, yeah, sure. And I got like, it was like a quarter Good raise. for you. I mean, to even recognize that, yeah, first he, of all. He and looked at too. me and he goes, as he was walking back in from his smoke break, he's like, yeah, good point. We're getting more work out of you than everybody else on the floor. And I went, yeah, well, I didn't. I don't know if actually it qualified into work because there's sometimes where I'm like, 
forget this. And I'd just sit down on a display and just sit there. Like, what am I? <laughs> Good for you because I probably would have taken the other approach. Like, can I just – instead of taking the cigarette breaks, can I just go home 30 minutes early? Well, there's that, too. I think the other approach <laughs> is taking up smoking, too, which is yeah. also not good. Not an option for me. <laughs> it, yeah. was just a, it was a weird place. It was, there was uh, the vast majority. It was probably like five, ten of us total out of the 50 people that worked there that didn't smoke. Yeah. The rest of the place are always out in the back smoking. You're like, this, how is this place running if everyone's having to stop and go take a smoke? So they didn't did even they, coordinate it. They usually just like group together and go. Are there still designated smoke breaks or do you just get 15-minute well, no, breaks? Everyone gets uh, you know, labor laws. You get breaks every periodically throughout the day, whatever the, whatever the time is. I'm not sure. Right. It's 15, 20, 10 minutes, whatever it is. And those are your smoke breaks. That's yeah. what you use to go do that. Okay. But a lot of places are like you have to be so far away from the building and they make it such a hassle that I don't know if if people – maybe it just makes less people want to smoke because it's such a a hassle to do it. But other places, they here's a place. Let's just designate this as the place where you go do that. We had one radio station I worked at. We had a smoker's porch. Oh, yeah. We had a smoker's room and a couple radio stations ago. And you just – if you didn't want to go back there, you went through the front door. When I was was (laughs) in and out, you basically had to do it by the dumpster. And they would do it. Yeah. They would do it. They wanted to do it that much. So, I don't know. People want – they want the compensation for the time they don't spend smoking now to compensate to make it even versus the smokers who seem to have all this time. I'm all for it. We'll see what happens. Uh, A U.S. couple. If you remember this story happened a couple weeks ago. I didn't cover the story because it was kind of sad. Okay. But this couple – Nikki Walsh, 24, and boyfriend Tanner Broadwell, 26, decided nearly a year ago they were tired of working – the Colorado couple sold all of their furniture and their SUV and purchased a 49-year-old boat in Alabama to live on and eventually sail the world in. Mm-hmm. The couple moved into the boat, which is uh, was in a marina on the Florida Gulf Coast. So it's right there, Alabama, right through that area, okay. the Gulf Coast. Uh, they lived there for four months while, with their two-year-old pug, Remy, while they stocked up on food and supplies. When they set sail for the Caribbean, two days into their venture, the couple's boat capsized after hitting a sandbar. So everything uh. they had owned... Their entire life savings into this boat, everything they owned, into the ocean. They they had $90 in their cell phone and their dog. Did they have any insurance? Uh, no. It's a 49-year-old boat. Yeah. Wow. Again, they have no experience with boats. Oh. They don't even know how. They, they ran right into a sandbar. Instead of asking wow. locals, like, hey, what's the best way? Any tips on navigating these channels headed out? And they're like, they just... Take off, and they tip their boat over. So it turned into this thing online where people are laughing at them, mocking them. Other people felt sorry for them. There were some yeah. GoFundMe-type situations. They've gathered enough money because when, you, when your boat is sinks like that, you, you're, it's your responsibility to recover key like the engine and some other you know oil, that kind of thing, so you don't contaminate don't the water. Her, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Get that out, so you send a salvage crew and they get it out. Then, Which then you is going to cost money. You have 20 days, 30 days to get the boat out of the water if it's recoverable, oh, which wow. this was because it was in shallow water they took yeah. the boat in. And so that was all recovered. Well, now uh, someone came to them as a benefactor and sold them another boat for $1. Hmm. And they're going to embark on their trip again. Oh. Uh... My question is, as a society, do we have a say in this? They seem to they seem to not have the proper judgment. They don't seem to be able to do this. Okay. They're not getting any help. They don't have any more training. They're just going to jump on a boat and try to go to the Caribbean. But, but listen to the way you phrased that. You said, as a society, their actions suggest that they don't want to be a part of society. Well, true. So, I mean, should we let them do this? 
Should I don't we, think we get a say. I don't think we get a say. Should we have a say? Aren't there boat licenses? Like I, I don't when know. I was 16, I got a driver's license right. and I was not allowed on the road because I would probably tip a car over or do something dumb if I didn't have a proper training and ability to drive a car. There's do we certainly... not have this for boats to make sure that people don't just tip their boats over? I'm pretty sure you don't have to have one because you go out boating and somebody's nephew is steering and yeah. I, it certainly seems like there should be. Yeah. So as a society, this could be an, an avenue, right? Right. But again, licenses. Now, no, knowing fully, we have no say in this. Espe- but it just yeah. feels like we should. It feels like they're making another bad decision. It's very clear they're making a bad decision. Well, and we're just going to let it happen. They're going to they'll learn the hard way again. Then. And this other guy that that basically gave them a boat for a dollar. He's an he, enabler. He's enabling this behavior. <laughs> Yeah. These people don't know what they're doing. Get on an airplane, go to the Caribbean, just go hang out down there because apparently they've raised a lot of money to replace their life mm. that they dumped into the ocean. Wow. So. Can they just hire a, a captain? There's a charter probably somewhere that'll take you. you can get, there's a huge cruise ship somewhere and they have a pizza wow. bar. There's other options. Um, you do hear about those people that instead of like just sitting around in a retirement home, yeah. they just they just cruise go on cruises all yeah. the time. They it, live on the cruise ship. It costs about the same. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not oh, a bad idea. Other news. We, 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 we you wanted to bring this up earlier. Yes. I said we're going to wait. Okay. Now is the time. Okay. Um, I told my wife that uh, we we need to change the calendar. Adjust some plans coming up that the first weekend of May, which is, I think that may be when we're trying to celebrate my son's birthday. So mm-hmm. this is actually working out better for us. <laughs> the 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 next uh, Marvel movie is uh, The Infinity War. Yes. Avengers Infinity War. It's being backed up a week to the, wow. the, the weekend of the, the 27th of April. That is big news. For you, I mean, especially. It, it's really, it's changing. It's life changing. I had to stop last <laughs> night. My wife's like, what are you doing? I go, I'm changing a calendar entry. She goes, what for? And I go, well, we have plans and I've moved it to a different weekend now. So how does that work if you've already purchased tickets? Well, I have not. And oh, okay. I don't believe they're, they're, I don't, they're probably not on sale yet. Oh, aren't they? Probably not. They, oh, they're not, okay. they're not worried about these movies for sale type situations. And they like the, uh, what was it? The Black Panther didn't go on until about a month before. So yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you still got time. This isn't Star Wars where See, they give you like a I, I four month lead on that. You're I'm already shaking. chomping I'm, at the uh, bit. Yeah, yeah. You're just really jittery over there. So, uh, so they're backing this movie up a week. Which I mean, if you don't care, it doesn't matter. But if you do care, it's it's the <laughs> most important news of the day. Backing up in a good way. So every time you say backing up, I'm like my heart's sinking a little bit, thinking no, 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 I have no. to wait longer. They're bringing it closer <laughs> oh, to they're us. They're bringing it closer. Yeah. It's now a week closer to yes. to all of us. It's so great. I I care more than Matt Townsend would for sure. Sure. Well, he just kind of rolls his eyes because he doesn't he doesn't like embrace this like he should. Um, <laughs> I mean, look at all the effort they've done. There's eight what eighteen movies now. This is all an interconnected universe. People have 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 thought and crafted this so that you can have eighteen movies in a row that have a little bit to do with each other, and then and certain points they all cross together, and you can get really involved in this, or you know you can just go watch your art movies and try to be uplifted, and blah, which blah, nobody blah. is doing. And most art movies are not uplifting, by the way. Yeah, I know, I know they're <laughs> they're dark, and as you this. will find out Sunday when we have the Academy Awards. Yeah, because that's what all the movies are. Um, so it's interesting though. Uh, Bob Iger, he's the uh, CEO of Disney. Mm-hmm. He was on a, uh, a phone call with some Wall Street analysts, and somebody was asking him about 
the influence of these big movies. It just had uh, Black Panther come out. It's on its way to becoming a billion-dollar movie. Mm-hmm. And how does this impact, say, the rest of your, your company? They, they always try to have these sort of movies have a tie-in at Disneyland and Disney World, different parks. Yeah. When last time my son and I and my wife went to Disneyland, it was the May right after Frozen came out. Mm-hmm. They hadn't had a chance to update a ride or something in a Frozen theme, and so they're trying to figure out a way to get the princesses from Frozen into the park somehow. And so they took over one of the – there's like a Tiki Hut restaurant, and they mm-hmm. shut it down, put ice – what looked like icicles on the roof of this thing, and made it into a little like ice castle Tiki Hut. It was really kind of odd. But in it was – you know, the princesses were in there for the meet and greet. It was yeah. right next to the Dumbo ride, if you know where that is. Oh, yeah. And I was just watching it, and I'm like, this is odd. They're doing anything they can to have that character here, because all these little girls are showing up dressed as these characters, but there's nothing in the park for Frozen. That's yeah. how this was when I was there. Yeah. And then we go over to Tomorrowland, and they had some guy dressed as Thor you could go take a picture with, some guy captain, dressed as Captain America. I went up and talked to him. He goes, hello, my name's Steve Rogers. And I looked at him like, really? Because <laughs> I was big. I was a little taller than he was and a little broader shoulder than he was. I'm like, seriously, Captain? Yeah, all right. He like put the moves on my wife. I was like, maybe, what are you doing, Captain? Maybe he like grabs he's her, like, put his arms around her. I'm like, what are you doing? Back maybe off. Maybe he's like pre-injection yeah. Steve Rogers. I, that's really what I learned. They're kind of <laughs> scrawny for that. But So Bob Iger from Disney says they have $11 billion franchises, so many that we're Sheesh. competing with ourselves. And Black Panther should be a twelfth billion dollar franchise, yeah, right? Yeah. He goes, I pretty much guarantee you that this coming Halloween and every Christmas, uh, and even Christmas, you'll be seeing a lot of Black Panther toys, costumes, all that kind of stuff so as they get the marketing machine yeah. revved up. But I, I went through, and so we have there's uh, you have the Avengers movie now in April, yeah. end of April. You have mm-hmm. an Ant Man movie, which is July sixth. That won't be a billion dollar. I'm thing, excited for that, but it's one. connected to the Marvel thing, which yeah. is huge, right? Then you have the solo movie in May. Yes. So in between the Avengers movie and Ant Man is the Star Wars movie. Right again, a billion dollar franchise. Yeah, and that Star Wars movie is what some people are hypothesizing prompted Disney to move up Avengers a little bit, is to give get Solo day. time to breathe, get it they, away before the Avengers takes everything away like from they, it. Right? Like they said, they're competing with themselves, and so and then, now this gives them three weeks before Solo comes and takes a little bit of their money. The rest yeah. of the year, some of the movies they have coming out of the Incredibles, Wreck It Ralph, and Mary Poppins are all things they want to put a lot of focus on. Sheesh. Mary Poppins is coming out December 25th, right? Usually the Star Wars movies will come out around Christmas, but they've opened that up now so they can have some holiday movies and not have Star Wars just eat up all the air throughout the holiday season. So they're they're, they're competing with themselves everywhere because they have all these huge movie franchises. Wrinkle in Time is the next thing to come out that will probably get Uh, Black Panther finally off of its perch at number one. This is the question people have. Is it too big? Is it going to start eating itself because they start putting out these movies and it's like oh I gotta go see this one and now I'm gonna see this one and I'm gonna start not seeing certain movies because these other movies are coming out and as he says they're competing with themselves is yeah. there enough room in the calendar for these massive films to come out and they have any make make any sense so. so all these movies about superheroes with superpowers and maybe Disney's superpower is that they kind they of are mono- a superpower. they monopolize the movie industry Anyway, speaking of superpowers, Cole, maybe yours is to fly, maybe it's to have x-ray vision, maybe it's to be able to power nap, 
But uh, our next guest is actually going to be talking to us about another superpower, and it involves what you think of what other people think of you. Did you ever see that as a superpower? Well, our next our next guest is going to explain why maybe it is a superpower when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. In this day and age of Instagram models and face filters, many live in constant a constant state of checking their followers and showing off. What people think of us is becoming more important than ever, right? Well, Edward Lattimore, a professional boxer and author of the book Not Caring What Other People Think is a Superpower, would argue the opposite by arguing that caring exclusively what people think suffocates our actions and steals our potential away. By using our dormant superpower of not caring what other people think, we can do all that we choose to do. And we are pleased to be joined by Edward on the phone. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Good over here in the Northeast. I know you guys are in the Pacific Northwest. So, oh, yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a, I think the weather is on a bit of a flip-flop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm super excited to talk to you about this this book and your experience as a boxer as well. Um, just really quickly, let's get it out of the way. As a boxer, is there an obligation to be a huge fan of the Rocky films? Um, no. In fact, one of my one of my good friends and co-hosts of the podcast, he really hates the Rocky films. <laughs> and, this, and this is a guy um, who probably, if, if not, I'm not for sure, I'm pretty sure he's going to go down as the most decorated amateur heavyweight in American boxing history. Them are terrible. <laughs> I love them though. I, I love the, the heart. I, I need to show my girlfriend that pretty soon. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. But we're, we're not all uniform. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan too. Yeah. Um, so as a boxer, you know, you, you constantly have people scrutinizing your moves and especially if you were to lose a fight, which I'm not sure if you have, you know, you have people second guessing the choices that you made during the fight. How do you how do you get to a point where you don't you just don't care what people think or say about you? The method for, for that is the same for the method and everything and I, I talk about developing that ability in the book and what you have to do above all things is commit to a process and, and not care about an outcome you know most of us really care how we look how you know what the end result is what's more important is how you get to that result because no one can take that away from you that's very hard to not you know we need to stay focused on the process and stay focused on what we get out of developing mastery, you know. But it, we are pushed towards the external. We tend to do things sometimes of a dubious nature to kind of shortcut the process and maybe shortcut the enjoyment we get out of improvement as opposed to, you know, or, or rather when we focus on a lot of people think where we're just going to their reaction. And I think you start out uh, the segment saying, about the Instagram or the social media 
external verification, and we'll do anything we can for that. We need to focus on building our own little inner castle and, and laying brick by brick that home. Yeah. So, Edward, I'm curious to know also, is there what's the negative side of this? Is there is there a, a destructive aspect of not caring what other people think about you or caring about what people think about you? What's what's the harm in that? Well, the destructive aspect only, only you know, rears its ugly head when you misinterpret the statement. Because I get people all the time going, well, can you care what the boss thinks, what the, what the family thinks? And I'm like, I mean, you, you should value their opinion insofar as how it allows to facilitate a successful relationship. But outside of that, what I mean is, what I mean by as far as it takes your relationship, it's not that you're saying, you know, forget the world, I'm going to do what I want, and you're going to get on my terms to get off it. You know, that's part of it, but it's the intent that those actions are performed with. When I tell people to not care what other people think, when I'm telling them to not worry about making to not worry about looking foolish, to not work again. This is all externally exposed. I'm telling them to focus on something inside that they that they can control and, and make that better and improve on that. And when you do that, right, I mean, I think if there's any negative, it may take a little longer. People may yell at you a little more. You may feel if you let the external world define you know, your, your metrics for progress, you may feel like you are operating more slowly or less adequately. But in reality, you're, you're just getting it right for you, and you're getting it right the correct way. And when I say it, I mean whatever you know, whatever you have to do, whatever your task is at hand that you want other people to look at you favorably for. But the, but the whole goal is to look at yourself favorably. You're looking in the mirror and saying, I earned this the hard way. I did this, and do that, then almost all, almost all negative that one could imagine evaporate. Yeah, you know the the two examples that I think of in my life are: uh, is it acceptable for my wife to go to Target? in her sweatpants. She's always like, she's always <laughs> wanting to do it, but she never has the guts to do it. And I'm always saying. Yeah, just go do it. You know, you you don't need to worry about people thinking you're you don't work hard or that you're lazy. Just do it. You've had a hard day. You want to be comfortable. Just do it. And then I think the other one that that people often think about is speaking of going to Target or another store, is how they treat their children when everybody is watching and their children are maybe misbehaving. You know right. what. What do you what do you say to your to your wife or your girlfriend when she really wants to go to the store in her sweats but she she just can't bring herself to do it? <laughs> uh, you know, let, let's assume she would listen to me first of all. <laughs> That's that. Yeah, yeah. What I what I would tell her what I would tell her is this is a sliver of time, and it's a really small sliver, and people are going to attach significance to that sliver of time, regardless of, of what you do. You know. Let's say, let's flip it on his head and say, you know, she gets completely done up to go to Target. And and no matter what she does, there's going to be some judgment attached to it, right? You know, imagine, imagine your wife walking down the aisle of the Target, and, you know, in high heels and a, and a nice dress, 
with her hair and makeup. And people go, well, what's, what's wrong with this picture? On the flip side, you know, she goes and sweats and her hair undone and maybe, and maybe you know, some makeup from yesterday running off, not, not properly applied or washed or anything, you know. And, you know, in her mind, she goes, oh, I look like a mess. And maybe someone else is judging. Maybe they aren't. But you have to move forward. A lot of people are so caught up in their own world. They, they, yes, the, these things may make a lasting impression, like to cause your eyes to wander briefly, like, oh, what is that? But afterwards, and it's so quick, it's that sliver of time. People are back on their own, uh, in their own world and concerned with their own <laughs> perception or concerned with the, with the, the face they're putting out to the world. So, so what I would tell her is, is from a rational perspective, completely rational, no one really cares, right? And and if they care, it's more like, oh, look at that. A pigeon that's not flying when I walk towards it, kind of deal, like, oh, that's, that's odd. But, but your mind quickly gets back on task. From, my, from just an internal personal development standpoint, I would tell her that when you worry about these things, you're attaching so much significance to a, a thing that that is insignificant, that it's causing you distress, and that is there's enough things in life to be dis- distressed about. Yeah, you certainly should make your choice of sweatpants. Yeah, um, <laughs> one of them. Yeah. So, Edward, when we return, I want to talk to you more about uh, your experience as a boxer and maybe how some of this applies to to your career. Uh, We're speaking with Edward Lattimore, and he uh, is a professional boxer and author of the book Not Caring What Other People Think is a Superpower. And we'll continue the discussion when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Speaking with Edward Lattimore, a professional boxer and author of the book Not Caring What Other People Think is a Superpower, Edward is also an avid Rocky fan, as we've come to find out. And Edward, I wanted to talk to you about your career as a boxer and and how your experience as a boxer led you to write this book. Well, it's, um, well, well, boxing teaches that at least so far my experience, and I hope I can think. To, to learn even more about this. Boxing teaches it doesn't really uh, matter how things are going step by step. It's the overall group. And there's very sharp feedback along the way. So when you have that, day, if you have a flip-up, um, you know, it, it hurts. But you still have to continue on the path. So in many ways, boxing really naturally wants to start and so I I really wanted a way to give back to people because for me I'm I'm just a natural teacher and I get a chance to teach based on my my experiences in life and boxing has been a tremendous experience in my life it has taught me a lot it has made me a better person in just about every way possible so I wanted to discuss the areas with boxing specifically forced me to develop in a sort of, now there are physical like activities in the book for you to, to do because I think that's important, 
but the mindset and the willpower and the emotional control, all of that, that I've learned and developed in the sport of boxing. I wrote essays about the way those things change me and how they can change you and how they can make you more adept at finding your superpower, not caring what other people think because they force you to focus on the process. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of, of things that you've written, in your book you, you have a chapter on poems. Why oh. <laughs> why would you say that's an important aspect? So, so you know, where that came from is back and forth, because I, I grew my following largely on Twitter. And back, I, I don't know how long it's been now, maybe, maybe nine months, maybe six months, somewhere in that range. Twitter switched over and allows you to have 280 characters to express yourself as opposed to 140. They, they doubled it. And what I, what I like to do for a very long time was kind of compose these, these little uh, poems that would only fit in 140 characters. Yeah. And to do that, you have to kind of, you, you have to really grab the essence of a thing because you don't have that many words to express yourself. But each poem, you know, I, I didn't just, you know, craft some, some silly childish limerick. I mean, I wanted each poem to kind of have, not kind of, I mean, to really have significance. Like, like my, the first one I ever crafted, I'll never forget, and it, this was before I thought about putting them together, you know, was, you know, when you can make slow movements fast and fast, fast movements slow, you've reached the level of mastery that few ever know. And I got that idea, you know, I was just expressing how I felt about boxing and it fit in 140 characters. And then, and then when I seen how much fun that was, I decided to do other ones and, and that they don't all have catchy rhyme schemes, but they all do express a point that I, I think people can take with them and become better at focusing on the process. And the, and each poem is followed with an actual step. Oh, that's <clears> cool. Um, Edward, just in closing here, I, I think about junior high school students. I, you know, I look back on my two years in junior high school and just see that as like the most awkward, uh, difficult portion of my life, just trying to make a transition from elementary school to high school. And all of a sudden you're worried about girls and asking them out on dates and things like that. And, and that was even without the social media aspect, right? So oh, with, with the social media aspect thrown in today, if you were to go to an auditorium of junior high schoolers today, what sort of advice would you give them? Oh, goodness. If I was to tell, because it's so different now. We I always talk about how like kids are never going to know yeah. the stress that we had calling like, a girl at home <laughs> and talking to her parents first. Like that's just completely, I'm in school right now with kids who are 20 and they don't, they don't know that. Yeah. So, but, but if I was to go back and tell kids one thing today, I would tell them <laughs> to ooh, I, talk to people in person. Really force all your interactions. Don't take the easy way out. If you can build that habit in your life to, early, because it's so easy to just you know hop in whatever medium there is, you know, between Twitter and Facebook and text messages directly to just send the message and not have to interact face to face. You're going to set yourself up to always look for ways to alleviate discomfort. Because if you remember, I'm not sure your age range, but I would I would guess you're at least my age. And my age, we were dealing with 
everyone, you know, they were like, don't call me on the phone. But there was no way to really talk to someone. So you kind of had to work through that anxiety. Yeah. And now kids, and, and I think that anxiety naturally exists to communicate with a person face-to-face and really have to take in all of their sub-communication clues and their body language and tonality and spacing and word choice, et cetera. If I can get a kid to do that, to start forcing themselves to do that, you know, in, in the seventh or eighth grade, by the time they get to the 12th grade, not only will they be better for it in terms of dealing with human beings, they'll be better for it because they'll be able to understand themselves and how to communicate with others. You know, basic manners won't disappear, or at least they'll make an, a reemergence because I think basic manners have kind of fallen off, and that's one of the, one of the unfortunate side effects of social media. Because, you know, you don't know about not interrupting people are 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 standing on when a person uh, comes and says hello when you're sitting down because why would you learn that? <laughs> if yeah, communication is digital. Yeah, well, Edward, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. His name is Edward Lattimore, and he's a professional boxer and author of the book "Not Caring What Other People Think" is a superpower, and. Uh, Cole, I, I'm curious to know, like I said, would, would your superpower be not caring what other people think, or what do you think it would be? It seems like a good one. Um, I've always been a fan of immortality, because, or okay. in, like invincibility, a Wolverine-type yeah. superpower okay. that just keeps you around forever, and you can do whatever you want. Yeah. It's intriguing. Gosh, I, I wish I could say that any superpower that I could conjure up wouldn't be uh, focused on self, but unfortunately, they it probably would. You know, like flying, mm-hmm. or you know, X-ray vision or something. I, I I don't think I'd want X-ray vision. I don't think that'd be useful if you were a doctor. You know, you could yeah. help other people with yeah, that. Or if I, you want to rob a bank, you can see through the vault. I if I could maybe eat whatever I wanted and not gain any weight. There you go. That could be pretty destructive, though, even if not physically. In other ways, I think well, it could be destructive. The Flash kind of gets that. So if you have super speed, you have a super metabolism. Yeah, because he's always mm-hmm. running. So he just runs it all off in seconds. And it, But it doesn't seem like it's so hard. Like for you and me, running would be a chore, right? It's something oh, we yeah. do because well, we have to. Not but a chore, him, but a punishment. Easy. Really, a punishment. Mm-hmm. Like it, if... If I were to get in trouble and you didn't want me to repeat my mistakes, just force me to run. <laughs> I'll remember real quick not to do that again. Uh-huh. Yeah. So another quick question before we go to break, Cole. Yeah. This is somebody who's not uh, – he does not have superpowers, but he's super powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's Especially Rocky, compared to you and I. <laughs> yeah. Rocky Balboa in the films – well, in that Rocky franchise. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Rocky film? So I – I'm a purist. Yeah, I believe that the first Rocky was the best Rocky. Okay, and really the most true to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is still a little hard to swallow that like they give this basically uh, enforcer, like low life thug, a chance to compete with the heavyweight champion or the middleweight champion or whatever it was world. of the world. It's a little hard to swallow, but. I mean, if you look at the ending, it's it's pretty accurate to how it would turn Rocky out. Rocky loses the fight. It's Spoiler great. Spoiler alert. 
Yeah. He's allowed to. You're allowed to go in. And I think that's what makes Rocky one of the greatest sports movies is that not only is he a true everyman, he's he's given the opportunity of a lifetime and he's trying to turn his whole life around that's kind of gone downhill slowly. And yeah. he gets this opportunity for redemption and he doesn't have to win the sports thing in order to truly feel that redemption in his heart. Right. And it's it's crazy because, yeah, it's so – I mean uh, Edward, our guest, talked about this, how – uplifting and empowering these films can be. I mean, just seeing him in training, running up those steps in Philadelphia, with which I'm sure you're very familiar, <laughs> and it can be empowering. Like, I can I can defy these odds. Even if I fail, I got off my butt and tried it, you know? Um, you know, it's one of those interesting questions that, like, it all depends on when you're asked this question. If you were to ask me this question when I was a kid, the greatest thing in the world was to see Rocky square off against Hulk Hogan and Mr. T in Rocky Three. It was the greatest thing. Thunderlips. Yeah, but if you go back, the the original Rocky is just great. I mean, it focuses so much on characters and so much on he he wrote it in like a week or something crazy like that. And the the dialogue and the acting is just so authentic because it just sounds like. They're just making it up on the spot. And if you don't believe me, and this is – we're going to do this once on Screen Cleaning, Cole. I'm going to I'm gonna have you go and watch Rocky and write down – like put a tally mark next to every time Sylvester Stallone says, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, uh. He says, you know, like a million times <laughs> Those little in that fillers movie. that we're trained as public speakers to yeah. take out of our dialogue because once you start to hear them, you cannot yeah. unhear them. Or even like in radio editing, I go through sometimes with interviews and I'll just take out people's ums to yeah. make them sound better. Yeah. The whole Rocky movie is just Sylvester Stallone not being comfortable speaking in public. And yeah. it makes it a stronger character for it. And he was nominated for Best Actor for yes. that role. How many other actors can you think of that were nominated twice for the same role in different movies? Um, Probably mm-hmm. the Godfather people, mm-hmm. right? But that's the only I, other I critically know. acclaimed franchise that I can think of from the Oscars, which happened to be happening this weekend. Ah. All right, we better take a break. And when we return, we're going to continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, yeah, if you asked me when I, when I was a kid, Rocky Three, But now I think I'm a Rocky One guy. And there are Rocky Four supporters out there for sure. Oh, there, that's a huge movement. Yep. Okay, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Cole, we often uh, hypothesize about, uh, and we we just spoke with somebody today about how we tend to love entertainment that focuses on criminal activity, and mostly, usually it's the nonviolent ones that we fantasize about, like stealing from a bank, right, or getting away with something. Usually, it's not you know the ones that deal with murder, but. Often, and I, Matt, and I hypothesize about why we would not make good criminals. And I think this story illustrates why I would not make a good criminal. It's not about me, but let me tell you the story first. Okay. 
A Canadian man and woman allegedly fleeing a bank robbery were arrested in New Brunswick on Monday after they stopped at a Tim Hortons drive through Yep. So when you brought this up concerning the thread of our conversation this morning, <laughs> I had a feeling in my gut yeah. that it would be gut-related and food-related. I have a feeling in my gut. I think it's hunger. I'm uh-huh. going to do something about that after the show. So they're at a Tim Hortons because yeah. it's Canadian, of course. At least six p. <laughs> Uh, at least six police cars swooped in on the suspects before they had a chance to place an order. Several thousand dollars were recovered, according to the police report. Employees of an RBC Royal Bank called in the robbery, saying an unarmed man whose face was partially covered with a bandana had entered the Main Street branch and demanded money from an employee before fleeing with an undisclosed amount of cash and a car being driven by a woman. A passing police officer spotted the car and followed it to the restaurant. So, yes. They ignored a couple of the classic uh, no-nos in getting away with a robbery. You may be hungry. You may be even starving after you've robbed a bank. But wait until you're in the clear before you go out and get some food, right? At least stash the goods somewhere so that whenever you go out again, they can't just say, hey, uh, what's that in your back seat? Right. Right there with the giant money sign on the bags. Yes. And rule number two, and this seems like it should be even an even bigger rule than rule number one, is don't get yourself into a situation where you can neither pull forward or go in reverse because you're blocked in a drive-through. Drive-throughs are just yes. – uh, they're not good for escaping. It's called a getaway car and there's no way to get away from a drive-through. We've all been exactly. trapped in a drive-through at oh, one yeah. point. There have been times I'm in the drive-through where I'm boxed in. It's like if I had to leave at a moment's notice, I wouldn't be able to do it because I'm totally trapped. Or I misanticipated how long it would truly take to get through it right. and I need to be somewhere. But at this point, I can't even bail out and leave my food because I'm trapped. So don't rob a bank. And if you really must, don't go to a drive-thru right after. Even if you're hungry. Give it some time. Or go before you – eat before you do the Or go in the store maybe. (laughs) These are all horrible ideas. Don't don't rob a bank. Uh, Speaking of robbing banks, a North Carolina man was arrested after allegedly robbing a bank Tuesday afternoon, according to a news release from the Reedsville Police. Kendrick Hart, 29, is charged with the armed – and listen, we just had a story about not naming these perpetrators. But these guys were caught and nobody was harmed, so I guess in a way it's okay. Uh, He's charged with the armed robbery of the American Partners Federal Credit Union. The suspect walked into the bank holding a large stick, yelled, this is a robbery, (laughs) then jumped over the counter and proceeded to steal an unknown amount of money, police said in the release. About five minutes after the robbery, Hart was stopped in the parking lot by a sheriff's deputy, the release said. Was this Gandalf? I mean, how do you threaten people with a stick? With a stick. Did he, like, throw it down and say, you shall not pass? He also wasn't subtle in his approach to the robbery. Yeah. Announcing what exactly he was doing, that this was, in fact, a robbery. What do you do with a stick in a robbery? Do you use it to point, like, no, 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 no. Those I want that money over there. <laughs> I just, I'm baffled every time we have a new bank robbery story because I'm surprised that people... Still rob banks, yeah. but with the frequency that we talk and about them on the Matt Townsend show, it just gets tougher and tougher to rob a bank these days because you don't re- you don't know how to get away with robbing a bank. And now, if you try to Google robbing a bank, we just had a story about this yesterday. You're going to get caught without even robbing the bank. 
It's so frustrating. This world is just not conducive for bank robbers anymore. I think that's a good thing <laughs> that we've managed to accomplish in society. Oh, well. See, I don't even fantasize about robbing a bank or if finding money that doesn't belong to me. I just – I've tried to adopt the rule like if I didn't earn it, it's not mine. There's no temptation because it's not mine. There you go. Good person, Jeff. Well, there are a lot of other ways in which I'm, I need to improve. <laughs> and uh, that's what we're trying to help you do here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome to the SC News Desk. This is Ron Brokaw. Front yards are being ripped up in a San Jose neighborhood. And while residents are well aware of who the culprits are, there is very little they can do. The torn-up lawns are the work of wild pigs on a feeding frenzy. They strike in the middle of the night, digging up lawns in the evergreen neighborhood of South San Jose. About 20 of the wild boars have destroyed more than half a dozen lawns in the neighborhood over the past week. Kevin McFatridge, one of the poor, unfortunate souls affected by feeding frenzy, says his front lawn looks like a war zone. The pigs even took out his geranium plants. We can handle a little patch here or there, but our entire lawn is gone now, and that's very frustrating, McFatrick said. If you live in San Jose, please keep an eye out for these pesky pigs. And whatever you do, don't let them get to your geraniums. We'll bring you updates on this terrifying tale as they become available. We now take you live to Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson. Well, thank you, Ron Brokaw, for that. Oh, that's a scary story. We need to be on the lookout for those pigs. Have you ever seen a pig tear up a lawn like that, Reed? I haven't, but I have seen javelinas with those big... <gasps> I mean, they could probably do the trick. I haven't Ooh. seen them take out a lawn, but... I wouldn't want to let any one of those animals near my lawn. Well, now they could do it because it's totally dead. Anyway, we're working on that. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. Today I'm joined by Reed Wolfley. Hello. Reed, thanks for being on the show with me today. No problem. And uh, it's going to be a great show. On Screen Cleaning, we are all about helping you save your Fridays and Saturday nights by providing you with ideas for entertainment that is clean for the whole family. And uh, you might think it's a difficult task, but if you look a little closer, it's it's easier than you think. We're here every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. And uh, what we try to do every, every show, uh, to, to start off the show, is to give you the best in entertainment news. So we're going to do just that. We're going to give you the best of entertainment news. Now, in our best parody news, somebody did something very clever. You know that Ron Howard is the new director for the Han Solo movie. He's taking Mm -hmm. over. And Ron Howard is also the producer and narrator for the hilarious show Arrested Development. And he narrates every episode And he is a very recognizable voice by now. And somebody took clips from Star Wars movies and made it seem like it was an Arrested Development type show. And so we're going to play you a little clip from the spoof Arrested Rebellion. You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? He didn't. 
Should I have? What a piece of junk! It actually looked pretty good. I bought run Imperial starships, not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Carillion ships now. Both things he just said were lies. She won't get a scratch. Not so. I got it! But he really didn't. Later that night... You love him? Yes. All right. I understand. Although he did have some of the details wrong. He's my brother. <laughs> Good news on the Arrested Development front. They are going to do a season five, which will be on Netflix. And hopefully it'll be good news that Ron Howard is taking over the reins for this movie. He's had a lot of hits, but more recently he's had a lot of not so great movies like he did Inferno with Tom Hanks, the third uh, Langdon, Robert Langdon movie that pretty much tanked with critics and audiences alike. But I'm sure he's going to do great things with Han Solo and the Star Wars universe. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, We do have an important update. Uh, Ron Brokaw did mention that we would give you updates on the pig story as as they uh, came available. And uh, the update is that there's actually a new trailer. They're, They're already making a movie about these pigs. And there's a new trailer all about this pig scare and these pigs tearing up lawns. And uh, in fact, Reed, do you want to play that for us? I don't suppose they told you anything about the tragedy we had here last winter. Well, a man named Charles Gravy. He was our previous caretaker. He came up here with his wife and two children, as well as his 20 wild boars. And at some point, he must have suffered some kind of mental breakdown. And he let his boars roam free on the grounds of this hotel. Well, the boars ran amok and completely dug up the lawn on the property and even ate all the geranium plants. You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. Now, the site is supposed to be built on a wild boar burial ground. I believe they actually had to repel a few wild boar attacks as they were building it. Now, if you're worried about wild boar attacks, you'll want to shine this red light that simulates predators, and that should keep them away. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff. And I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in. Red light. Red light. Red light. Red light. Red light. The swining. These hogs will bore you to death. Movie movie studios never really planned to produce box office flops. So why did two of the biggest summer releases, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Baywatch, earn way less than they were expected to? Is it the acting? The writing? The marketing? Maybe. But maybe the site Rotten Tomatoes is to blame. 
Here to talk to us today is Ashley Rodriguez, a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz, a digitally native news outlet for business people in the new global uh, global economy. Ashley, welcome to Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this because uh, there was a, a time and place where the mighty thumbs up or thumbs down of Siskel and Ebert carried a lot of clout. People really relied on those movie ratings. And, you know, neither of those critics are, are with us anymore. But the the website Rotten Tomatoes is. And I'm curious I'm curious to know a little bit more about Rotten Tomatoes. I, I use it frequently. But uh, if you could do us a favor, just tell us a little bit about what Rotten Tomatoes is and uh, why people go there to to decide whether or not they should be seeing a certain movie? Sure. Well, Rotten Tomatoes is a movie review site that aggregates reviews from different film critics. So each critic will assign a film either a rotten or a fresh tomato um, based on Rotten Tomatoes, what they call a tomato reader. And essentially the overall score is determined by the share of tomatoes that are assigned to each film. So if a movie has a 90% fresh rating, it means that 90% of critics gave the movie a fresh tomato and essentially thought it was a good movie. Now, that could be based on tens of reviews, or it could be based on hundreds of reviews, depending on how many submitted for each film. There's also a separate audience score, and that shows you what the share of just average viewers like you or me thought about the movie and whether they liked it. But when you glance at Rotten Tomatoes, what you generally see on the homepage is the critic score. That's what we're looking at, and that's what people are mostly concerned about. So for audiences, it's a really easy way to see whether a film is worth your time, right? You don't have to read through other reviews. But the trouble is that it eliminates some of the nuance that you get from film critics. What they generally do is they'll tell you, you know, a movie may be considered a bad film, It could have poor direction, um, the plot could be lacking, the performance could be underwhelming, but it could still be good fun to watch the theaters. And that's what you kind of lose a little bit when you look at these aggregation sites. Interesting. So, I mean, it it makes it so it's very black or white. You either like the movie or you don't like the movie when in actuality there's a lot more at play and maybe they – they don't really think it's a great movie, but it's fun, so they'll give it a you know a positive rating. What are some other factors that go into these ratings? Is there can we only rely on the fresh or rotten, or is there some other type of score or gauge on the website by which we can judge these movies? Well, there is a way where you can click in. So this is if you actually click on the title, when you go on the homepage, what you're seeing is the name of the movie and then you're seeing a score that's next to it. If you actually click into the title of the film, then there's a way that you can just see the scores of top critics. So these are critics that have maybe a little bit more clout. Um, They're here regularly. They, based on um, Rotten Tomatoes, they may maybe have a little bit better judgment. And so you can see just what they're thinking. And you can also look at the audience score, which, as I mentioned, it gives you a sense of just whether average viewers like you or me liked watching it. Okay. So what would you say is the difference between aggregated film reviews and film criticism? I think that what you lose a little bit with the aggregation is you lose um, the nuance that the film critic gives you describing what is good and what's bad about the movie so that you can make your own informed choice as a viewer as to whether or not you want to see it. 
um, aggregation sites just kind of boil it down into a number as to what the overall general audience thinks. The other thing that you kind of lose with film criticism is you may have a film critic that just um, really kind of gets your taste. You align really well with their perspective, and they're almost an influencer in a way for you. And so you may rely on their reviews a little bit more heavily because they like the same types of movies that you like. You don't really get that, um, that level of detail with aggregation. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ashley Rodriguez, who is a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz. And uh, Ashley, you recently wrote an article about how movie studios are complaining that Rotten Tomatoes, uh, it's it's ruining their box office numbers. So do you believe that's true? Well, if we look at the summer box office, and in the U.S., the summer box office is defined by a very particular period of time. It starts um, Friday, the first Friday in May, and it runs through Labor Day. And this year, we're down. We've been consistently down about 8%. Um, The last time I checked was a little bit over a week ago, and we were still down about 8% from last year in terms of the overall money that has been brought in from movies. Interesting. So we are seeing a little bit of an impact, and the concern from some of these movie studios is that these movies have gotten bad reviews. We've certainly seen that with Transformers. Um, There's a fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie that was out this year. There have been a lot of movies that just have not gotten good reviews and audiences just haven't shown up. There are other things they could be watching. There are movies on Netflix. You know, there's a a lot of great television on right now. They don't want to spend the money on a movie that's just not great. But the other concern is that, you know, maybe these movies just aren't great to begin with and aren't going to be drawing audiences. I mean, how excited can you really get over a fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie? (laughs) It's not much different than the last four. Exactly. So why do these movie studios keep making these sequels that seemingly nobody wants to see? Are are they just very risk-averse? Why do they keep doing this to themselves? That's exactly it. They're relying on properties that are already established and already have an audience because there is so much other competition from things like TV and streaming services. There are a lot of other places for people to get their entertainment these days besides the cinema, and so they're relying on these already established properties. And now when we talk about these movies doing badly here in the U.S., they may lose money here, but they're making it up abroad. Audiences in China, in particular, love some of these movies. So if we talk about Pirates, Pirates um, brought in about $170 here in the U.S. this summer. On a budget, it cost $230 to make. So it lost money here. But internationally, it brought in about $600 Wow. So it made a ton of money. And for the studio, for Disney, that's worth it. Interesting. So... Okay, I, I want to kind of change directions here a little bit. Getting back to critics on on Rotten Tomatoes. So, do you think it's fair that these critics, the the, the same critics that maybe are a little more highbrow and have different tastes than somebody who's a little more lowbrow, do you should they all be reviewing the same movies? So, for instance, uh, should a critic that analyzes a comedy be the same critic that comments on a historical drama? You know, that's a really good question because um, some of these films are just shouldn't be looked at in the same way. You know, a superhero movie is generally not going to be an Oscar contender in the same way that a big expensive drama might be. 
So someone who's used to that certain type of film shouldn't be judging the other. But generally, a lot of good film critics will weigh these things with a grain of salt, right? That's, again, why we um, prioritize some of the nuances in film criticism, because they will note that, you know, this is may not be an amazing film as we look at it as a film, but it's still a good movie. Yeah. So you, you do sort of get that level of it there. So it seems like one tactic that comes from movie studios is to just not screen their movie ahead of time for movie critics, maybe because they're confident that it's just going to get trashed by the critics and they're worried at what that negative score might do to their box office numbers. Do you think it is effective for movie studios to withhold their movie from being criticized before it's released? I think there will definitely be a lot of pushback if we actually see that happen because people are so used to seeing reviews, right? About a week before we start seeing all the reviews for a film and it does build up buzz for a movie. So if you're a movie that, if you're a movie studio and you've got a a number of high profile projects coming out and they're getting good reviews, that is going to help you. But in the same, in the same vein, if they bomb, that's really just going to hurt your performance. So if you're in the business of making lowbrow comedies, maybe it doesn't make sense for you to re- to release or screen your films early for critics just so that they can, you know, hammer on it and then nobody goes to see it. Yeah. And it seems like there are certain movies that people are just going to go see regardless of how terrible the reviews are. I think of Suicide Squad. I think of Adam Sandler movies. People are just oh, yeah. going to go see it no matter what the critics say. <laughs> Exactly. Well, Netflix says um, Netflix is a great example because all of their recent Adam Sandler comedies have terrible reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But Netflix says that they're some of the most watched movies on the site. So, you know, audiences will watch them if they're there. But the, the, the barrier that that cinemas have or that movie studios have is that they have to get people to pay specifically for this movie. You know, I may just watch it if it's on TV or if it's on Netflix, but to actually shell out eight or nine dollars is a different story. Right. So, you know, speaking of Netflix, they've recently adopted a new rating system, which I'm not a huge fan of. I was a much bigger fan of the star rating system that they had. Uh, Now it's just I think it's you it's recommended for you or it's not recommended for you. Do you Mm -hmm. think um, is there any way that Rotten Tomatoes could change their rating system to make it maybe more similar to Netflix? That would be interesting. So the way that Netflix does it, it's very personalized, right? They have all this data based on what you specifically like. So when you gave all those star ratings, um, and when they changed it, so they changed for, for just anyone who's listening and doesn't know, they changed from five star ratings to a thumbs up and thumbs down for each title. Now, those five-star ratings were always based on what they thought you as a viewer would like and not what the general population of Netflix viewers thought of that particular title. But there was some confusion among Netflix members where they thought it was a quality rating rather than a metric for personalization. So that's why they changed to the thumbs up and thumbs down, just to make that a little bit clearer. So for Rotten Tomatoes to have to do something like that, they would then have to get a sense of what you personally think of each of those films. So it might be a way for them to do it for, you know, people who use Rotten Tomatoes all the time. But I think it would be really challenging in terms of figuring out a score for, like, general viewers. 
Well, I I have to blame uh, now. I have to blame Netflix for not being able to tell if I'm going to like a movie or not. So <laughs> Netflix is just perpetuating the problem because now I'm just going to Rotten Tomatoes to find out if I'm going to like a certain Netflix show. Uh, anyway, exactly. Yeah. How you would have to rely on Netflix. What Netflix thinks you like versus what the general audience likes. Right. Ashley, let's do this. Uh, We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to be doing something that's pretty fun, actually. We are going to be talking about films that critics hated that we like and movies that critics loved that we hated. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. This is Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson, and I'm speaking with Ashley Rodriguez, who is a reporter that covers media and marketing for Quartz, a digitally native news outlet for business people in the new global economy. And uh, prior to joining Quartz, she was a reporter for Advertising Age, covering retail and financial service marketers. And before that, she worked for digital creative and marketing agencies and was a freelance journalist. Ashley, thanks again for being on Screen Cleaning. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited, and I, I don't want to offend you in, in case <laughs> I trash a movie that uh, that you love or I uh, love a movie that you don't love. But uh, I thought you and I could each share a movie, first of all, that had a really low Rotten Tomatoes critic score that you actually enjoy. And I'll go ahead and start. And this is actually a recent pick. Uh, critics were not kind to the film King Arthur Legend of the Sword. And it actually... Yeah, they it, sure were not. Yeah, and it totally bombed here in, in the States. Uh, but it, So it got a 28% rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. I actually enjoyed this film. But I should say that I'm a huge fan of Guy Ritchie, the director, and his style. He did the Sherlock Holmes films. He uh, recently did The Man from UNCLE, which was another fun film. But I really enjoyed it. I enjoy his uh, style of storytelling. I thought it was about 30 minutes too long, and the ending was a little silly for me. But just a, a fun popcorn flick, and I wasn't looking for Shakespeare or even something that was true to the source material, but I actually enjoyed this film. You know, I'm a Guy Ritchie fan too, but I have to say that I maybe did what movie studios worry about, and then I saw all of the bad reviews and was like, you know what? I have a lot of movies to see this summer. I'll just wait until this one comes out on DVD or is on Amazon. Yeah. Um, So I have not seen it yet, Um, but I do plan to because, I, I mean... I liked all the other, you know, Sherlock was, it was a pretty good film for what it was. I, you know, I had a lot of fun. There's a lot of action. So, um, you know, there are, it's one of those movies where I feel like you can still enjoy it, even though it's not great. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what is your pick for the movie that had a really low Rotten Tomato score, but that you loved? So it's funny that you should ask this because I was just talking about this with um, my fiance the other day because it came on television. It's an older movie. It's called Smoke and Aces. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's this really dark comedy with Ray Liotta and Ryan Reynolds and Jeremy Piven. And then there's just a ton of gratuitous violence. It has about a 29% score on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's just one of those movies that's good fun. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie, but I'll watch it when it comes on. 
Okay, yeah, I haven't seen that one, but you said Ray Liotta's in it. it is uh, is Jason Bateman in that one too? He might be. You know, I can't recall. Hmm. Okay, so Smoke and Aces. Now, also, it sometimes it happens that uh, movies have a very high critic score, and the audience score is very low. And uh, one example, and I this isn't my pick, but one example I thought of was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull had a pretty good critics review, but audiences seemed to really hate it as time went by. I didn't mind it as much. I didn't think it was that different from any of the other Indiana Jones films as, as far as the plausibility of certain action sequences. That's not my pick, but that was just an example. Another, uh, another example, which is my pick, is a film directed by Robert Altman called A Prairie Home Companion. It got an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Pretty high critic score. And this, of course, is based on the Garrison Keillor Prairie Home Companion uh, radio shows that he used to put on. It's got, it's got a great cast. Woody Harrelson, Meryl Streep, um, John C. Riley, Garrison Keillor, of course, is in it, and Tommy Lee Jones. This is one of those films that, and I should say that I haven't really listened to or watched any of the Prairie Home Companion radio shows, uh, but this film just really didn't do anything for me. thought it was kind of boring. It was kind of all over the place. And uh, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan. So this is an example of a film that got great scores from the critics, but not so much from, from me or audiences in general. Um, so I have not seen that one. My example is um, one that actually both critics and audiences liked, but I was not into. So I'm a little bit of the dissenter, I guess, in this one. Um, the Avengers, the first Avengers movie. I thought I was going to love it. I was really excited going into it. I remember I went to the midnight showing. It was directed by Joss Whedon, so who I absolutely love. And I was really excited about it, but I was just, I think maybe my expectations were too high and I was disappointed walking out of it. I just felt like the plot was kind of um, shallow. And while I did appreciate what he did with the characterization element of it, I felt like, you know, Loki's master plan throughout it all was not very impressive for someone who's supposed to be the god of trickery. Um, wow. So I was pretty disappointed with that one. You are a dissenter. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting because that's a film that I remember seeing and, and very much enjoying. Um, but I remember having a clear thought at the end of that movie. Wow. Where are they going to go from here? Because it was just so huge in scale, so epic. Mm-hmm. And I I haven't enjoyed some of the other Marvel movies as much as the Avengers because I, I, I feel like. They, there's this mentality of we've got to up the ante in every single one of these movies. It's got to be bigger than the previous movie. And I don't agree with that mentality. And I've actually liked some of the smaller Marvel films better, like Ant-Man I was a huge fan of because they they kind of slowed down. They did a smaller story. It wasn't as big or epic. And I really enjoyed that. Plus, I thought it was just flat out funny. But, uh, I loved Captain America Winter Soldier for a similar reason because huh. I thought it was what the Avengers should have been without the egos. Interesting. So it was a smaller level with the exception of Captain America, who's huge, of course. But it was the Falcon, it was the Black Widow, and it was this sort of team-up without all of the huge action that we get out of the Avengers movies because there's so many big characters in that. You know, and I think I think you bring up a good point here, just in closing. Um, I You and I seem to have 
totally different opinions on these Marvel movies, but that is just fine. And I think that's what a lot of people forget about when they go look at reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. All of these critics' tastes, all of the audience uh, tastes are going to be totally different. And one movie that you love is a movie that I may just hate. And that's okay. So there's there's really something for everybody out there. And if you're if you're willing to spend the time, do a little more research, you may stumble across a movie that you know one man's trash is another man's gold. I, I totally botched what that famous saying, but it really goes to show you there is something for everybody out there. And uh, Ashley Rodriguez, I just want to thank you again for for being on screen cleaning. I had a great time with you, and uh, keep up the good work. And and hopefully we can have you back on the show. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. See what they're up to this weekend. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. We are heading over to Spencer and Jerem, who are in Las Vegas, of all places, to do this episode of BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jerem, are you guys hitting the crap tables, or are you just sticking to your work? Uh, mostly work. Spencer will join us in a moment, by the way. So okay. I'm uh, solo for Lone Man in the Garden of Eden right now, but... Yeah, we're we're in Vegas, baby. Uh, we did the show here yesterday. We'll be here through uh, Monday or Tuesday, depending on kind of what happens. But BYU men's hoops playing tomorrow against San Diego. The women unfortunately lost yesterday. Oh, they're out. Darn it, man! Yeah. I, I'm curious to know what have you seen anything weird? Like, what would you say is the weirdest thing you've seen in Vegas so far, Spencer? Yeah. Oh yeah. The weirdest thing. I, well, we don't get out as much as you'd think because. We do this show plus four games and uh, two bridge shows and four halftimes. Yeah. We, we're not oot and a boot as much as you would think. Well, I mean. Uh, and and ask, me, ask me off air the, uh, the answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I think, Spencer, that's a good answer because for some reason he, he waits until you guys get to Vegas to pull out the boa. And uh, it's kind of a fashion statement. Yeah, it's what he does. You know, it's, it's like Spencer's a unique cat. We let him do his thing. It's within the honor code, so it works most of the time. So, uh, yeah, I don't, but I don't remember seeing he's too many. Don't I don't remember seeing too many boas at BYU when I was going there. Boas. I did see. I did see plenty of capes. You know, like Lord of the Rings garb. I learned. Well, I learned from The Incredibles. No capes. Oh yes. That's what I. Mean. No capes. No capes. Uh, no have you seen the trailer for that? By the way, Incredibles yeah. two. I think so. It's going to be amazing. When does it come out? This summer. Right? This summer. Yeah. To a theater near you. <laughs> hey, I'm curious to know, speaking of BYU, did you hear about this BYU research that uh, could predict how many homers your favorite baseball player will hit this season? No. You no, didn't hear about this? About no. So, yeah, uh, this is Gil Fellingham. He developed Gil a home. Gil Fellingham is famous. Yeah. Yes. And he developed a home run prediction model for Major League Baseball players, one that controls uh, for the players. Yeah, let's see. 
Oh, it's it, for for the era of their birth, season of play, and home uh, ballpark to get what the researchers call a pure performance curve. Ooh. Oh, PPC. Yeah, wouldn't that be sweet if you could predict how many home runs a given baseball player is going to hit each season? Interesting. That would be sweet. So, what does he have? Take for, that person say, to Las Vegas, Mike Trout. Mike Trout? Have, I don't know. Oh, this is specific numbers for specific this is the already? this is the exciting part. One of the players that he uses in the example is the Dodgers' Chase Utley. Why does he use Chase Utley of all people with homers? I don't know because yeah, he's not somebody that's known for hitting a ton of home runs. Now. Yeah. Chase Utley has a weird swing. Like he, when he hits a home run, it's the, one of the weirdest things you've ever seen because it's like he kind of just l- lightly flicks the back, and all of a sudden the ball is leaving the ballpark. It's like what? Huh? It's no, C- Citizens Bank Ballpark. Yeah, yeah. He's playing in Dodger Stadium. Yeah. Mez Ravine, the heavy ocean air now. It's 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 as far as home runs go. Like other players. They, they, it leaves the bat, and there's no question. It's like, whoa, he just crushed that. Chase Utley, he right. just smacks like, it. And it's a, like, oh, that's going to be a single. And then it's out of the park. Single? Is that a gapper? Oh, <laughs> over the fence? Yeah. For a play-by-play in baseball like Spencer, he needs to know so he can go, it is high, it is far, it is a single to right field. Yeah. Sometimes you absolutely <laughs> know when it comes off the bat. But then there are times, like you bring up with Chase Utley, where it he hits it and it, you know, fly ball in the left field, going back, going back. Because you're trying to assess how far is the ball Yes. Hit? Yeah. And what's funny is you're not seeing the ball. Yeah. You're watching, you're watching the You watch the fielder. You watch you his watch reaction. reaction. Exactly. Yeah. The one, one, one thing from we watch a lot of sports, right? So the casual observer of sports, one thing that can help you watch sports, watch the reaction of the people. So in football – are you wondering if it was a holding call? Watch the offensive linemen. Are they walking back? Are they holding still? Are they moving forward? Oh, you, you absolutely you watch can, body language. You can predict body yeah. language to tell you the reaction tells the story. Oh, yeah. It's like that uh, the field goal back in the football game. It must have been it was either like 2006 or 2007 where it was down to a field goal, like all the, all the other team had to do against BYU was score this field goal and they were going to win the game. And their kicker was amazing and it was really close. And it was the one where it like bounced off of somebody's fingers. Do you remember that? And I remember seeing it. Seven Vegas Bowl. Yeah, I remember UCLA. seeing it on the television thinking, okay, well, there's the game. But then all of all of BYU's fans and all of BYU's players were rushing the field, and I was like, wait a minute, what happened? So, yeah. In, in, in that moment, I was underneath the field goal post with the camera, and the the my, my boss at the time, Scott Hill, who's back at BYU TV now, mm-hmm. for a sec, he, I, I couldn't see where the ball went, and then I feel this push in the back. He goes, run out there! <laughs> so then I run into the middle of the field and get the reaction. It was great. But, yeah, I totally missed it. Yeah, you're right. you got to watch the you got to watch the crowd. you got to watch what the players are doing and how far back they're going. So I'm curious to know what is coming up on your show here in just a few minutes. Loaded. Oh, it's day two of the West Coast Conference Gorilla Glue 2018 Basketball Championships. And we are discussing the confidence level that BYU fans have for the men's team after watching the women's team lose their first ever conference game last night. 
and we'll do so in the first game, right. Mm. We'll do so with the head coach of BYU basketball, Dave Rose. Hmm. Okay. Talk to Steve Cleveland. His breakdown on the Cougars matchup with the Toreros tomorrow. Uh, We will discuss uh, Fred Warner at the NFL Combine. Today is uh, the first of three days for him. BYU's one and only likely NFL draft pick. BYU's got a quarterback that might just be a little bit bigger than Taysom Hill. Whoa. We're going to show you a photo from Wednesday's photo day. It is incredible. Okay. Um, are you guys going to try to squeeze in like a Hamilton or a Spamalot or a Blue Man group? Oh, as in a show? Yes. Like we're going to have time to go to a show? Yeah. We don't really have time, frankly. But isn't it Frank? about time, as Jason Shepard always likes to say on the show? It is, if it's the 90s and it's the church promo. <laughs> we're, we're working. We're working, man. Yeah, we're, we're, no, literally, it's, it's very fun. Yesterday and today, for the majority of our crew, we're, we're not the only ones here. There are a lot of hardworking people. But we're, we're in here at uh, about 8, and then we leave at about 10. Yes. And that's not the two-hour math I'm doing there. Whoa. So, so it's a fun, it's fun busy day, but it's fun because we have all these games. We have four games coming up starting at 3 Eastern time today. Spencer's calling games. Yeah. I help produce some of the shows between games and a halftime, but, yeah, it's, they're a lot of hardworking people. So. You don't even, it sounds like you don't even have time to hit one of the many buffets that they have there. Oh, not there's really. always time for food. Oh, okay. We hit okay. Jack in the Box late last night for some... Two taco action. Not a good decision on my part. <laughs> <laughs> Milk was a bad choice. Hey, and really quickly before we let you go, Cole and I earlier were discussing uh, the various sugared cereals that I should be consuming with my wife this weekend as we have our cereal date. Oh, now we're talking. And real quick before you go, I want to hear the best sugared cereal, Spencer, the best sugared uh, cereal, Jerem. Oh, man, I just had a new one, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. This morning? No, not this morning. Oh, uh, we both ate some cereal this morning. It's, it's the Honey Made Grams. It's like Golden Grams, but a different brand. It's like Honey Made Grams, and it's got marshmallows in it. It's s'mores, Honey Made s'mores. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh. All right. Oh, oh. Jerem, what, what's yeah. another one that we should have Cinnamon on our date crunch. night? Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cinnamon Toast Crunch is on the, uh, the menu. Get so there the you honey-made go. s'mores, man. If you haven't had them, it'll change your life. <laughs> All right, Spencer and Jerem, we'll go change our lives as you guys get ready for your show that's coming up here in about five minutes on BYU right. Sports Nation. Have a great time. You got it. Thank you. Well, as you know, we like to end each show of screen cleaning with our panning for good segment. There's good in them dire hills. As you know, on screen cleaning, we try to help you find the best entertainment around. And one way that we do that is by shining a spotlight on a particular movie, actor, performer. And in this case, it's a person who has shared her favorite movies with me. And that is my wife who is celebrating her birthday today. I did what every man should do and I went birthday. She wanted me to share her five favorite films on screen cleaning. And so I'm going to do so. She grew up watching the same three movies every weekend with her family. And she loves to share the story of how her dad, even though he's seen these films so many times, 
would always say, oh, no, what are they going to do? And would react very dramatically as if he doesn't know what's going to happen, even though he's seen the films many, many times. One of those films is the great film The Fugitive, the Academy Award winning film, Best Picture nominated film The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And to me, this is one of the examples of perfect casting because – the people that have these these uh, U.S. Marshal jobs are the people that you would imagine having these jobs, not some young blonde bombshell. These are very real, realistic portrayals of U.S. Marshals. Great, exciting film. She would also watch Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Maybe not uh, totally accurate as far as accents go because as you know Kevin Costner plays Robin Hood and that is actually the punchline of a joke in the Mel Brooks version of Robin Hood Robin Hood Men in Tights where Carrie Elwes says unlike other Robin Hood I can speak with a British accent <laughs> but it's still a good movie Morgan Freeman, Alan Rickman. Who doesn't love them some Alan Rickman? And the other film that they watched quite frequently was Jurassic Park, the wonderful Steven Spielberg-directed film, the only film really in that whole Jurassic Park franchise that is, you know, rewatchable. So there you have it, my wife's three favorite pictures of all time. I love you, honey, although I never call you honey. <laughs> Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Coming up next, we've got BYU Sports Nation, and they are coming to you live from Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas! We'll talk to you again next week.